Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. Another great week for It's The Real. Yes, the first great week of 2017. We wouldn't have it any other way. Happy New Year to everybody listening out there. Jeff, a couple things happened recently, one of which was that we received a package from Interscope Records. Now, the last time we got a package from Interscope, they sent us... They were supposed to send us two French Montana masks. Yeah, uh, he was promoting the song Don't Panic, and they had these Jason hockey masks uh, that they sent us, and they said Don't Panic on them. Yeah. Um, so they were supposed to send us two. They instead sent us 100. 100. Um, and so we took those... We didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, because we're not going to have 100 fucking French Montana masks. As much as we love French Montana, we're not going to have 100 of his masks in our apartment. And so we delivered them to everybody who wanted one in New York City. And then even sent some, like, to Seattle, to London. We did the we did a huge favor for our friends over at Interscope for how much money? Uh, none. Nothing. But um, that's because we're idiots. Um, nice of us. Great idiots, street team. Idiots with a lot of time on our hands. And so we just got this package just now. Just Literally now. just now. Um, Labeled uh, as? Eric and Jeff Rosenthal. Okay. From Interscope Records. A little surprise in the mail. What's inside the box? One hoodie. For? Both of us. <laughs> Shout out to the interns at Interscope Records. Thanks for starting the new year off right. Thanks for doing a fine job. Oh, what else is going on, Jeff? Uh, you watched the Jay-Z video. I did. I, I watched... Shout out to Director X, who directed... Uh, when he was Little X, he directed the Excuse Me Miss video for Jay-Z. And I was watching it yesterday, and at like 4 minutes and 14 seconds, something around there in, I discovered that, uh, I, I don't know, the cameraman or, or a grip or someone on the team is pictured... Uh, reflected in part of the elevator. So uh, I tweeted about it, and it's still going on right now. Wait, I thought that it was the guy who was operating... I don't, I don't think it's a real elevator. I think it's the guy who's operating the elevator door. It might be. It's but... just some white dude's face in the corner. Yeah, so if you look there, it's like a little um, an Easter egg. <laughs> it's just a little something to find in that, in that Jay-Z video. Excuse me, miss. And I said, just notice that Jay-Z and his lady weren't the only ones in the elevator in the Excuse Me, Miss video. And I copied Director X on there on Twitter. And he retweeted it last night. So yeah. either Director X has a good sense of humor about it. And we've had him on the podcast. You can listen for yourself. Or... Director X just blindly retweets everything. But either way, happy 2017 to Director X. Jeff, happy 2017 to us because what are we doing on February 23rd? We are going to be at SOBs. We're going to be having our show, Your Girls Tour, where we will be performing all of our old songs, all of our new songs, all of our classic, classic, it's the real songs. Yeah, all those hits. Special guests. Hits with an S at the end. Audience interaction. It is a night you do not want to miss, and tickets are on sale right now. Go to itstherial.com, buy some for you, buy some for your family, bring Director X down, and buy some for him. Return all of your Christmas presents and buy some Christmas presents for us. Itstherial.com, tickets on sale for your girls' tour. Go there right now. Jeff, who's on the podcast today? We have Ev Boogie. And where do people know Ev Boogie from? Up North Trips on uh, Instagram, on Tumblr, on the the internet as a wide entity. Yeah, so Up North Trips, Ev Boogie, it, uh, man, he's got an incredible story that we get into. But if you don't know Up North Trips, he is like the hip-hop historian. And he has a new book out right now with Stretch Armstrong, the famed DJ. What's it called? It's called No Sleep, and it's all of... Uh, 
the flyers from 1988 to 1998 in New York City that people would pass out for different shows. They've it's, got interviews in there with uh, some quotes from Jonathan Schechter. They got uh, Bob Ito. They got – I was going to say Bob, but then I just went with Bob Ito. Right. Because I'm not familiar with him like that. Like, we're not but friends. But hardcover book, it's, it's a – Look at New York history from uh, 88 to 99. It's a must-have. Apparently, it's sold out twice on Amazon, so go order it right now. It's called No Sleep, NYC Nightlife Flyers, 1988 to 1999. Jeff, when do you want to get into this podcast with that boogie? Uh, right, well, I want people to comment on iTunes first. So comment on iTunes. Leave a comment. Leave a you know nice note. So a rating, too, would be nice. Yeah, all of that. All of that stuff would be nice. And, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Summer Lovin', a.k.a. Talking Breezy. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. White Boy Wasted, a.k.a. Dockers. Yo, <laughs> it's me, Ev Boogie, a.k.a. Mr. Up North Trips, a.k.a. Sure, I'll sign your book for you. <laughs> yeah, this is a waste of time with the real. Ev. What's happening? Doing well. Happy to be here. Yeah. Thank happy you, New Year. Thank you. Happy you. Hanukkah. Yes. Likewise. Happy post Christmas. Happy pre New Year's. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We did the Yolono tour a year ago, and afterwards you came by with Dizza and said, "I have to be on your podcast." Yes, and we sir. were like, "One day you will be." One, and this is the and this day. is the day. This is the day. <laughs> this is the day. This Welcome. Is the one Thank shot. You. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations on your new book, by the way. Thank you, man. Thank no, you. No sleep. Brought a copy for you. Yes. That's it. No. no sleep. So you linked up with Stretch Armstrong, and you guys put together a book of classic and also hard to find and unknown and just a story of new york city hip-hop through live show posters that's it it's really a story of new york city that's the story it tells so yeah. these flyers so for the last five years and like you said linked up a stretch um stretch who who most people know uh, had the radio show and i'll plug his documentary amazing documentary it really Bobito is on netflix um stretch in addition to doing the radio show has been this new york city nightlife guy he dj'd in in a, in a lot of these clubs and um reached out to stretch and this is a long time in the making when we were talking a little bit about this this is five years worth of work here putting together these flyers because they're not from only his collection from my collection but we sought out collections from the most random people um you know and and here it is it's it's like 600 images of flyers from 88 to 99 um that really tell this story of of new york city you know uh interestingly enough if you flip through the book and you look at some of these addresses these places don't exist anymore yeah you know you're talking about dunkin donuts and starbucks and you know trader I joe's love partying in trader <laughs> oh, yeah, joe's yeah on. that's the shit right frozen food section yeah. they get very excited when you get the mac and cheese <laughs> that's it that's it um so it's a lot of fun, man, and it's been doing amazing. It's that's sold out so, on Amazon twice already. Yeah, that's, you're like a Shea Serrano type figure. Oof, I wish. <laughs> Shout out to Shea. No, it, uh, uh, New York Times, it, it's, it's really it's, – we've known you for a long time. Yep. We're thrilled that, that this is a physical uh, piece of work that you have, you have put out. Like we've known you online. Right. But this is something that can go on a bookshelf and is beautiful and is forever. It's a real thing. I'm a real boy. You are I a real boy. real boy. I am like the Pinocchio of the <laughs> online. No, yeah, the book legitimizes um, 
a lot of what I've been trying to do. You know, as most people know, I run up north trips, and I've yep. been doing that since must be six or seven years, which, which in internet time is like a hundred years. Yeah, um, which is really based on nostalgia and ephemera and history. And um, this took all of that in a very cool and unique way, and kind of was able to take everything from the ethos of what I tried to do and, 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 and take it offline. And the press has been crazy. Like you <laughs> talked about, New York Times, New Yorker. Um, it, it, it's something that appeals to a certain uh, standard of, of people who are educated about New York. And, and the unique thing about it is this is the first way to tell that story. There's been a couple of books about it, um, but it predates the era that we talked about, you know, 80 and 84 and 84 through 88, and this kind of picks up in this era that really hasn't been talked about. And a lot of the research that I tried to do when I did the book I was like trying to go online and find stuff about it, and you can't really, you know, the stories behind these flyers and the story that the book tells um, through flyers is something that really is only talked about on firsthand accounts. If you were to put your a, a description of what you do on a business card, would you call yourself like a documentarian, like a historian, like what would you say so. you are? Yeah, yeah, I think like archivist is mm-hmm. probably the best way to do it. You know, uh, you know, there's been a bunch of iterations of what I've done right. with Up North Trips. And, you know, for the people who are early knew that it was a lot about, oh, that's where you can find your rare photos. That's where the rare hip-hop photos are. You know, and time-wise, it was like I, I came on this platform of Tumblr, which was really new and really unique. And really, when I think about it, there was four or five hip-hop dudes out there. It was myself. It was a kid named Post who ran a, a site called Thugged Out Orthopedic. Mm-hmm. It was forty ounce van, yep. and it was yams. Yeah. Those were the dudes who ran hip hop Tumblr, you know. And it's the real who were actually <laughs> the <laughs> first people <laughs> on. <hip-hop. laughs> we were there in two thousand seven. No, yeah. yeah, no, you guys were really. Yeah. There was a small collection of us <laughs> yeah. that really took this platform, which is really new, and, and legitimized it in the hip hop sense. Like, there's a bunch of design Tumblrs, a bunch of kind of like anime Tumblrs, but really there was like this this collection of people that w- were, were really hardcore into hip hop. And up north trips was this rare photo thing, and then it caught on people other people started doing rare photos and, and you guys know and and then it was scans of magazines because like i'm a hip-hop hoarder that might go into business card hip-hop, <laughs> hip-hop hoarder <laughs> hip-hop hoarder that, that that's another good one um yeah, how yeah. many how many magazines do you actually have in your possession oh man a couple hundred a couple hundred hip-hop ones Probably about half of that, but I'm a huge sports fan too. So a bunch of old Sports Illustrateds still have them in like the plastic wrapping. A bunch of old like Red Books and uh, Cosmopolitan. Oh yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. No, but you know what else? I have Beckett books. You guys remember what Beckett of course, books? Yeah, of course. yeah, yeah. Trading card, card. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, how many baseball cards do you have? None. Oh, I know. Yeah. Yeah, none. Stole them. No, sold them. Um, I, I still have some cards. I mean, cards didn't really maintain the value that they did. You right. Know? Right. Um, but I still have my collection. Of would cards. you? Would you I had go like to- a forty dollar Albert Bell? Right. <laughs> that, that's it. Do you remember the Billy Ripkin card? The era card? Well, the one fuck where... Fuckface? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I say yeah. fuckface? Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Fuckface? <laughs> All right, cool. um, You're calling yeah. Billy Ripkin a fuckface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, where it said it on the bottom of the uh, on the uh, bottom of the bat. The bat yeah. yeah, somebody put did a t- printed a T shirt with that on it. That That's dope. dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would you go to trading card shows? Like, would you go to like? Uh, it was, we I did. Yeah. yeah, we would go yeah. to like the Westchester um, and get autographs. Yeah. Well, that, there was always somebody. That, at least yeah, the ones yeah, I yeah, went yeah, to. Yeah, those yeah, are the yeah. ones where it was like, oh, Daryl Strawberry's there signing autographs. Well, and, we went to ones. I remember we went. <laughs> we went to the the Westchester Mall, and there was there were like three guys who um were sort of like end of the bench mets you know um i'm trying to think who it was it might have been like rick reed um it was al lighter al lighter oh okay al lighter was was good was he there yeah 
Okay. I remember meeting him, like, t- uh, Tom Candiotti. Um, right. Obviously, like, we would meet guys at, like, Shea, like, you know, Gary Carter yeah. and Brett Saberhagen and people like that. But um, you would go to trading card shows, I too? would, yeah. I was a big trading card. And then I found about weed. And then baseball <laughs> cards didn't mean anything to me anymore. Well, where where did you grow up? So I grew up in the Hudson Valley, which okay. is about 90 miles here, a small town called Ellenville. Uh, Ellenville is known for the kind of like old Jewy hotels that were there. There was two famous ones. One was called the Falls View, and the other was called the Neville. And these were places that, like in the fifties and sixties, seventies, were like the place to go. Alan King, Whoa. you know, all these old school. This Jewish is like the Catskills. It is in the Catskills. Okay, right. I think that the hipster way is now to call it the Hudson Valley. Yeah, 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 yeah but yeah, it yeah. was the Catskills. It just steps away from <laughs> right the Jewiness. Yeah. No, yeah, it dejews the it dejews it. So yeah, the Hudson Valley Catskills is where where I grew up. Like. About 90 miles north of here, um, and, and I grew up there. And, Does that mean that the the summers were really the busy, oh, the yeah. busy season? Oh, that was it. That yeah. was it for them. Yeah. Well, what what went on during the fall and the winter? And you know, the, again, the it has also. So I shouldn't say that because there is also the winter where the ski resorts are too. Mm-hmm. So it kind of parallels. You know, summertime is, is is mostly for people who are vacationing, and then wintertime is a very different set of people who are into the outdoors and you know mountain biking and hiking and, and skiing and, and all that stuff. I almost died skiing uh, skiing up there. Did you? Where'd yeah. you go? Do you remember? Wyndham. Uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, it was very traumatizing. I, I, we talked about it on the, uh, on the open mic episode. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so um, so wait, so so uh, is it just you, or do you have brothers, sisters? I got a brother and sister. I'm the oldest of three. You're the oldest. Uh, I am the oldest of three. So you got to experience everything first. I did, man. And my brother and sister turned out great, and I turned <laughs> out uh, here. I am. Well, uh, you know, my brother and sister are lawyers. Well, I'm like the only one. Who are they like, criminal lawyers? They are not. Oh, they are not. that would have been I do helpful. Roll with a posse of yeah, attorneys yeah. at all times. <laughs> yeah. They both married lawyers, so I, was, I got this like clique of counsel that I could just <laughs> troop with. It's pretty dope. So, so what did your folks do up there? My father's a politician. Okay. My mother wor- worked in the school. She was a guidance counselor. She still is a guidance counselor. And my father still is a politician. Small so, town. Small town, upper middle class kid. Um, How big I, was your high school class? I graduated with less than 100 people. Oh, you, yeah, knew, super, you knew everybody. I knew everybody. And everybody knew who the Auerbachs were. Yeah. Which kind of was a good thing until it wasn't a good thing. You know, where, and, and, and I felt Who like, sold you that weed? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, or it was like, yo, you're the... Because my dad was the mayor, right? Oh. So they were like, yo, you're the mayor's kid. You're not going to get in trouble for throwing that rock through the window. And I was like, no, watch me. <laughs> and, and of course, then I would like get in trouble for it, you know. What, the, really the mayor, yeah, thanks, Dad. The mayor, yeah, wow. but it's a small town, so mayor is that's, not no, the mayor. But, but in that's the so sense. cool, though. Yeah, it's cool. I don't it's, know. Vote local, everybody. It yeah. was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Vote Roe. Yeah. He had a slogan. You ready for a slogan? It's not my back. It's not your back. Wow. It's, it's our, our back. back. Wow. Killed it. Killed it. That's like some sports center, like, he you know. He nailed it. He nailed it. So, um, who was, uh, it's not, oh, Craig Kilborn? It's not my Vetus. It's not your Vetus. It's our Vetus. Ooh, yeah. I like that one. I like that yeah. one. When I ran for uh, office in high school, I w- it was um, vote for Jeff. He's the Beth. <laughs> How to work did out? Did you win? No, uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, I wasn't the, indeed the Beth. Yeah. <laughs> what was your first job? Um, my father owned a hardware store. My grandfather owned a hardware store. So it was like third generation, my grandfather, my father. And then by the time I was a kid, you know, that was the third generation. And that was like my first job. And I fucking hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever worked in a hardware store. No, no. You shouldn't. Like you had, you were in charge of like making sure the screws were in the right, like, Oh uh, yeah. The nails. <laughs> yeah, nails. Yeah. My grandfather used to say, uh, 
$2 an hour and all the nails you can eat. That was what I got paid. It's like an old Jewy grandfather. And yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't like that. I just was not interested in it. I think that my, I was always with my head in the clouds. Well, what did you know about like bigger cities and getting out of that small town? I knew about New York City. My parents were, my mother grew up in the Bronx. So, so she had roots that were here and we would always come back, whether it was to visit family or they would take advantage of, of actually educating us on New York City. I didn't know a lot about it, mm-hmm. but I just knew that there was this land of opportunity and it was a big, big city and it was always I was always attracted to the arts and to the lights and to Broadway and to things like that as a kid were you watching a lot of cable growing up yeah for sure for sure I think my parents were uh, really good at, at, at building the imagination whether it was cable or whether it was reading books I mean yeah. my mother read to us as kids you know as, as long as I can remember and I always remember being attracted to that like escape of of media whether it was movies or books or, or television so for sure radio yeah. you know and, and, and then my transition into, into hip-hop was like, uh, you know, it was this – maybe you're going to ask me this question, so I'm going to kind of ju- jump you there Let's and answer. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I, my first rap record – I mean, I, I had knew the Beastie Boys, right? Yep. Obviously, mm-hmm. white kid, growing up, Jewish. I had always heard the Beastie Boys. But I remember the first rap song that ever really got me into it was Slick Rick's Indian Story. And Indian Girl, Indian Story, whatever it was, and it was like the it was like dirty nursery rhymes. Yeah. Like that and, and, and two live crew mm-hmm. took these nursery rhymes that I knew as a kid and put curse words in them. Yeah. And it was like I, I love this. I love that, <laughs> you know, like I love this stuff. I can't get enough of it, you know. You know I, what you know what? Um just the other day Jeff and I were like going through we got a we got a Sonos speaker, which was really nice. Shouts we're to like, them. Shouts to Sonos. We're yeah. like, let's play with this Sonos speaker and you can you can go through like Spotify and just like click on, on different songs and play with the speaker and I was like Something triggered, and I was like, "Oh, let me let me find this." Uh, Easy E, give me that nut. Was like that song for me. Dirty, I was just yeah. like, "This is dirty, and this is funny, and right. like, man, this right. is amazing." And so that was Slick Rick for you. That was Slick Rick for me. Yeah, it was dirty. I, I think I was at like summer camp, and somebody passed around a cassette. I didn't have it because, like I talked about, it, I was the oldest. I didn't yeah. have an older brother, or I didn't have a set of friends with older brothers. It was really unique about the kids that I grew up with. Was we were all the oldest, you know. So we really blazed the trails in terms of things on our own. Nobody handed down a Run DMC cassette to us, or was like, "Hey, kid, you should be watching." The, you know, uh, Goodfellas. Well, Goodfellas is a little bit later, but right. whatever those things were, we had to figure out on our own. Yeah, so, and that Slick Rick cassette kind of set me off into this like wormhole of like trying to get as much like hip hop into me as possible. Well, and where do you get it? You know, it was record stores. It was things. You know, like I. Did you have I, a local record store? There in was. Town? There was. I mean, anywhere between in twenty minutes, there was you know a Sam Goody or a Wiz. Yeah. You know, and I would camp out in the hip hop section. Nobody beats the Wiz. Nobody <laughs> beats the Wiz at all. R.I.P. the Wiz. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. I, I I grew up in those places. You know, yeah. standing in the hip hop, making friends with the people who were there, just so you knew when the rap releases were coming out. You know that there was no internet then. You know, so I, I think that the, the Bible for me back then, you know, and maybe I'm talking about late in that mid '90s was the Source. Yeah, you know, when the Source came out, I would flip back to that page that talked about when the release dates the release dates were, and you literally counted down the days until an album came out. You you know, and that was like the coolest thing for me. Did you have a subscription, or did nope. you you went and you picked I it up? At the I would pick it up. It was part of market the, price. Yeah, it was part of the experience. You yeah, know, to go out and be the first to get. It. I'm always a first kind of guy. Do you have those Source magazines? I do have a lot wow. of them, and I've also spent a lot of time digging through digital archives mm-hmm. and making sure, like, obviously, I. I didn't want to have to go through the work of having to digitize every single page, so I would right. find if somebody did it. And I've come across some real good troves of digitized Source magazine. So somewhere on some hard drive, I have probably, I don't know, 80 to 100 digitized copies of, of different sources from, I don't know, you know, whenever they started, late 80s, all the way through mid-90s. 
How? And then all the vibes are on uh, Google Books. And all the Books. vibes are on Google Books. That was like a best kept secret for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And Billboard really is there that. too. And Billboards are there too. Yeah. 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 How how good are you at labeling all your stuff on your hard drive? Oh, I'm a nerd. Oh, I'm yeah. a nerd. Yeah. Is your <laughs> iTunes like impeccable? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It yeah. is. You know, and, and some of my early beginnings, and, and we're probably jumping around a little bit, but when I got to college, I, I fell deep into this MP3 scene that was called IRC. I don't know if you guys yeah, know yeah. Oh, was that yeah. the one that was written up in uh, the New Yorker? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And fast out can talk about it. That's where I met Matt. And strangely enough. Really? Like, really? Yeah, yeah. Shout yeah. out to Matt Fastow. Yeah, shout out to Matt Fastow. I don't remember what his name was. I don't want to put him on blast, yeah. <laughs> but he had some like funny like handle. You know, but this internet relay chat was really the underbellies. And if you read that article, it was like this is where music was being released. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge gap between when it hit these kind of like underground channels and when it reached mainstream. Yep. You no, know, we're talking about months in between because you had to either be in the know or you had to wait till somebody you know, downloaded it, ripped it, burned it on a CD, and sold it to you for 10 bucks. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there's a good handful of eight or 10 people that I know today who are active in the industry mm. who came from that scene. I mean, Jesus Nice was on it. Jesus was in, and I don't really remember. Jesus was like in this elitist, you know, kind of group that <laughs> right. was there that, like, if you weren't down with them, they didn't give a fuck about you. RNS, <laughs> right. it was called. Yeah, yeah. RNS. Yeah, yeah RNS. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time doing that. So talking about cataloging, like, that was my first obsession, was like, I would just hoard I was at college you know on this like high speed connection and would download as much music and catalog them on CDRs and then I would number them and then I would make a note file and like so I still had this huge archive of music and that's really what kind of like inspired me to be this archivist because I wanted to just collect these things as much as I could do you still have a whole bunch of case logics at home I do dude I have them on spindles though the case logics (laughs) took way too much speed so they're like sitting on these hundred spindles and then in these books and this like milk crate that I have at home but I could go back and somebody's like, yo, do you remember that Angie Martinez mixtape? And I'm like, yeah. And then I could go through this notepad and find it and pull it out. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to link up with, with Lenny S because he has like a huge a trove of, of physical like artifacts from the years. Yeah, like he has all the S. Carters. He has like... The actual sneakers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, actual yeah, ones. Right. yeah, like, yeah. yeah. He, has 30 he also has the mixtapes, yeah. so yes, you can <laughs> well, talk like, to him I about I laugh about being a hip-hop hoarder, and, and you heard it here first, but that's just this next kind of iteration of development that I want to do is like this kind of conversation about who are these collectors? Like Lenny is like an amazing example of a guy who sits on this all this ephemera and nostalgia, and, and, and nostalgia is huge today, you know? Like it, it, it's MTV Cribs meets Hoarders, you know? And, right. and there's plenty of guys like NES. Jake One, the producer out in Seattle, yep. Sway. Uh, uh, I was talking about my pals V Edelman. You know, Zv is like you know these guys are huge collectors of all things hip hop, and and I think that there's a really good story to be told about. Why does somebody collect all this stuff? Why do you hold on to it? You know, and and, and coming back to the book, that was the interesting thing, and I think the book does. Um, we could have done a better job of talking about the collector, right? You know, in, in, in my experience of going out and seeking out these collections, you had a, this huge range of people. You had this range of people that were like, oh, word, I think I got a box of those types of flyers in my mom's crib. Let me go get them for you, and then I'll bring them to you. And that yeah. was, like, very casual. And then on the other end was, like, this person who had them, like, laid out in a photo book, you know, under wraps. Right. And they, like, had their arms around them or were like, no, I can't bear to leave these things because they're so important to me. Yeah. You know, and you had to literally like, pry them out of your hands and be like, look, I'm going to Take them for you at noon. We're going to go and digitize them, and we'll have them back to you by four o'clock. You know, promise. You know, right. um, but that collector. You have to leave so, your driver's license. Yeah. You yeah. literally yeah. had to do yeah. that, like you know. And and there's something to be told about why do people hold on to these things? You know, whether it's baseball cards or comic books. But I think that within hip hop, um, 
there's something really cool about the collector, you know, and, For sure. and those collections because everything is so flat and digital these days, right? Yeah. You know, and, that, and, and talking about the book, like I did a real thing, you know, it's, it's, it's something I can hand to somebody. It's something that uh, you guys have these great book collections. You can put it on your shelf. You yeah. Know? There was something really important in making that type of mark when transitioning up north trips from digital to physical, you know. Just like just like any artist now, uh, you can steal music, you can download music for free, but you can't take away a live performance. Like that is something you can go and experience, and that's what like books and transition. It's going to move that way. Yeah. It's going to move into these like very. I hate the word curated, but these very original, unique experiences. And I had a really cool opportunity right before the holidays is that Kendrick performed in Brooklyn. I don't know if you yeah, guys knew yeah, this yeah. Amex mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, they it was an Amex thing, and they made it, did it a real good job of making it. You know, Kendrick is a dude who's, like, performing to stadiums, right? There was maybe three or 400 people in this place. It was a super small, intimate venue. It was just, you know, talk about experiential. People walked away from that feeling. I did. I did as a music fan for over, you know, 20 or 30 years. Feeling like very special to be a part of of seeing awesome. something like that. So I, I I think that we'll probably trend in that direction of artists trying to make those experiences worthwhile for their art because you're not trying to just do a performance to sell a record anymore, right? You need to build these lifelong fans, you know. And by creating those experiences, I think there's an attachment from a fan to an artist that ensures that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was your first hip hop show? Oh. Oh man, I think I went to see Third Base. Wow. At Delhi University. Um, Delhi is like a small little college upstate. Um, they must have been doing a college run. Um, there was a friend who had an older brother who was into rap and was like, and I, I like had to beg my parents to go. And uh, yeah, that was, my, I think my first memorable show was probably Third Base. Amongst your friends, you were the, the most into hip hop or? Probably. Uh, over the long term, like mm-hmm. I, I had a friend very much in the in, in the beginning who was into two things: Run DMC and Guns N' Roses. Okay, I don't know why those two <laughs> things and Run DMC. He like pounded Run DMC into my head, and again we shared in that bond of like liking rap because although like Slick Rick was was that first like nasty naughty kind of rap that I loved, mm-hmm. I was only a- accessible to get things like I don't know you know Fresh Prince and and the Fat Boys, you know yeah. things that like and this is pre parental advisory sticker era, but I still think that I was not old enough to go buy my own thing so I had to depend on my parents and, and to go th- to get those things until this thing called Columbia Music House came oh my out, god which is like this story in itself and I don't think there's ever been anything that really explained how important that was or explained how it worked or how it worked <laughs> how they you know, made which money. Was this thing in a magazine where you can like for a penny get 10 <laughs> albums but then you were like signed up for the next 30 years to buy six CDs a year but shit at that point I took advantage of that you know I, I, did, I, I did it on my own without permission well yeah and, 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 I, and that was the way out because our, I had a friend growing up. His name is Jeff Fenster, and he was just like any time that they would be like, "Oh no, we're charging you. We're finally charging you for this." He'd be like, uh, "No, I did it without my mom's permission." Sorry, right, right, right. like, oh, yeah. I don't think I yeah. ever paid for any of it, but <laughs> yeah. I definitely got those ten CDs free or ten oh. cassettes. They might have even been right, at the time. Right, right, yeah, and that's where I was able to kind of get into more of those like I don't know, Ice Cubes and K Solo. You know, early night. I don't know why, but I was attracted to West Coast stuff. Maybe mm-hmm. it was because it was more prominent then and more, more widely like available. Sure, but mm-hmm. things like Cube and NWA, and then I kind of worked back my way back into the New York City stuff. And what did your parents think uh, of what you were listening to at the time? I, I mean, I have this really. Fun 
funny, amazing story. Again, grew up with a brother and sister. I was the oldest, and I remember being in this. We had a minivan, right? Like yeah. rolling in the minivan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the back seat, listening to my Walkman, and I don't remember what the song was, but like putting it on my brother's <laughs> ears to listen to, and he starts like cracking up. And my mother was like, "I don't know what's going on back there, but I don't like the sound of that laugh." And turned around and sees my brother listening to it, and was like, "What is he listening to?" And made me take the cassette out and hand it up front, and they put it like in the speakers of the van with my dad driving and it was like curse words and my mother literally ejected it and pulled the fucking tape outside out of the cassette like yanked it out so I would never be able to listen to it again and um Oh, yeah, man. yeah, but they, you know what? All those experiences and I and I put something up on Facebook when the book came out made all of that worth it, right? It legit this book really legitimized this upset lifelong obsession with rap and in a, in a time that kids might not appreciate today but being a white Jewish kid from upstate New York listening to hip hop and being obsessed about hip hop the way that I was was not the fucking norm, right? right? Today it's like, oh yeah, hip hop most popular Music and everybody should right. listen to it. I was like a wigger. That's what they would call me. You know, I wear baggy pants and like echo shirts. And you know, my friends were like strumming Pearl Jam, listening, right. to buying acoustics. Yeah. So you, you needed know. new friends. I needed new <laughs> friends. I needed new. But then they all started smoking weed and turned it to hip hop side. It's crazy. It was crazy. Like the weed turned them out. But yeah, no, I I, I was this outcast in a, in a way, not in a, not in a bad way, but I was not of the norm then. You know, right. I didn't have like flannels on and didn't know what the Nirvana song was and when do you make that move uh beyond your small town college yeah yeah and where'd college. you go well which time okay <laughs> yeah 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 i where, started where'd you I, get into i started out i started out i left high school and went to hofstra university both my parents had gone to hofstra mm-hmm. in long island yep um and i think that i try i wanted to be this like legacy and try to go to school there and i tried to get on the radio station there i remember at least now seeing an opportunity i met another white kid from boston who was into rap as much as i was his name was mike styles who mike styles wait is, real name no, oh. no, 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 no. I don't remember what his real name was. Mike Styles, but it was M I C Styles with a Z. Yeah, Mike well, Styles, but he ended up becoming like a big radio personality in Boston. Is that right? That's true. Yeah, I mean, he beat me out for the radio show, and and I never got into radio show. And and uh, I had a buddy of mine who came in, into college at FIT, right yeah. on Twenty Seventh Street, and legitimately, that's like all I would do in college. I would like get on the train on a Thursday afternoon and come and like hang with this dude at college and fucking drink forties and smoke blunts and play handball. And I didn't last very long at Hofstra. Right. I definitely did. <laughs> Um, and I spent some time away from college, and then I heard about this program up at uh, a state school, uh, which was called Music Industry, which was legitimately the major, um, and it was at Oneonta. And, uh, Stoneyonta. Or Baloneyonta, <laughs> depending on which side of the partying spectrum you're on. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. I didn't know about Baloneyonta. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> at what point are you going out to um, eastern Long Island and your summers spent oh, with, shit. Yeah, with yeah, 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 yeah. our friend Johnny Scheiss. So there's like a little bit of, of, of a part where, where I, and I listen to John, shout out to John, who, who you know, John went to college. Yeah. John had like this like hiccup of an experience <laughs> at college, right? So like in between going to Hofstra and ending up at Oneonta, right? Like I applied to Oneonta and they were like, yeah, man, you didn't really do too well at Hofstra, so we don't <laughs> think you should come here. Why don't you try, you know, no, basically. Right. And like a couple weeks later, I got this a couple weeks later, I get this letter from some school called Cobal Skill. And oh, I, yeah. You know, which yeah. is like this small ag tech college. I never even fucking heard of it. And they're like, uh, if you want to submit your application, we'll accept you. And I was like, <laughs> all right, cool. So, yeah, so I ended up going off to this school because I knew college is what I wanted to do. And, and, and again, um, I think somewhere in my life, 
I wanted to be a rapper. I mean, somewhere that my love for hip hop was like, I'm, I'm educated. I, I could freestyle my ass off. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. And I just mean, do a quick, like 500 bars right now. 500. All right. <laughs> Who's going to beatbox? Yeah. And the two of you beatbox? Yeah. Um, so I was at the school, and there was a kid who lived on my floor. Make a long story short, he was like, yo, did you ever meet Johnny down at the apartments? There was, like, these off-campus apartments. He's got a beat machine, and I had never met him. So I went down there, and that's, my, that's when I met Johnny Shipes. Whoa. You know, Johnny Shipes was, like, living down off-campus in this, like, weed-smoke-filled apartment. <laughs> what? I mean, everything that you think Him? of John, but at an 18-year-old. He was much more svelte than yeah, he is yeah. now, and he had a better jump shot than he, then than he does now. And he was a producer. That's what he wanted to do. His early beginnings was he was a beat maker, and I... I was a rapper or thought I was a rapper and, and it worked out and you know to paint the picture this is a pre-Eminem America like this is no Slim Shady none of that was yeah. out so there was still this kind of like and maybe for some there still are those aspirations to be this white rapper but this was pre that and there was like a better opportunity for that and you know that was the connection that we made there and again it was a hiccup of an experience for John I don't think he lasted a semester well how did the, how did the music sound um Yo, John has it was 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 skilled, man. He he understood the the um the physics of of, of drum patterns, uh-huh. right? You know, which is obviously the foundation for any beats. And he used to have these really dope drum kits, and he would he would sample. You know, his thing was that he would try just try to get as many records as possible and and, and sample, and and it was all right. You know, what'd you guys call yourselves? Um. I think I was always Ev Boogie. Okay. Um, and he was always Johnny Shipes. But I remember <laughs> that the, the precursor to cinematic was called Crown and Throne. Crown, Crown and Throne, Throne was like the, the name of what it was going to be before it was cinematic, you know. And, and, and what happened from that point is, you know, John split college and came to New York City. And he's, you know, made this like storied career that started from him as a producer in, in New York City. They shared a studio. And, and interestingly enough, it was John. Mark Ronson and Stretch Armstrong shared the studio down on Green Street. John rented a room, and I continued on in college, you know, and it went from this Cobble skill into this Oneonta and got more of a what they considered, and I'm using air quotes, formal education in music industry, right. which really wasn't worth the paper it was printed on by the time <laughs> I left, for real. Yeah. Um, and John, well, what did they teach the you? You know, I, I, my my best story about what my education was like is I had a class called Music Marketing and Merchandising, which was <laughs> taught by the dean, right? And one of the classes, what the final project was, you needed to build a record store. You needed to do a marketing plan for it. You needed to do an inventory plan for it. You needed to write floor plans for how it looked. And I was like, yo, I'm going to do this like technology DJ store. It's going to sell equipment and beat machines and blah, 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 blah. So I did this whole first draft and submitted to him. And he was like... This is not what we're looking for. Actually, he said to me, where are your reeds? Where are your clarinets? Where Where is the brass instruments? And I was like, what? That's and he was ass, like, right? you know, yeah. this is yeah. not what I want to do. And he was like, well, this is what we're looking for. Like, he wanted a music store in the conventional sense of selling music instruments. So I had to go back to the drawing board, and I did it however he wanted it. But that's just a perfect example of how behind the ball that these teachers were. And this was uh, this was mid-Napster lawsuit era. Wow. You know, so there's this, there is an interesting transition between where the music business was and where it was heading in the sense that it was becoming digital, but I don't think professors embraced that at the time. I hope you called up that that dean like when you were up at 550 Madison. And He's retired. Like, you know where I'm calling from? He's retired <laughs> The music now. industry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is me. I'm calling from the Go future. fuck yourself and take your reads and shove them up your ass. Uh, <laughs> Wait, 
Did you meet Stretch back then? I didn't meet Stretch. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Weird. I mean, maybe in passing I yeah. had. Um, I don't know. He's sort of memorable. <laughs> he is sort of memorable. In passing, he wouldn't remember me. I probably did. I do remember meeting Mark Ronson because Mark at the time dropped an album called Here Comes the Fuzz. Yep. And he had it shaved in the back of his head. <laughs> I don't know. If you go look at the cover, Here Comes the Fuzz is that's what the album covered. And I remember this was the time the album came out and he had that shit shaved in the back of his head. Wow. But this was also a really interesting time. Like, I remember, I remember being so attracted to that scene. Like, okay, so where this was happening for John, I missed out a good part of it, but then I graduated Oneonta and I came down and I would see that and that people like Bangham Smurf and 50 yeah. were in the studio and Saigon, and I was like, yo, this is what I wanted to do, right? And I got this internship through school at Interscope. It was my first job out of college and it was nothing in hip-hop. I worked as the assistant to the t- director of tour marketing huh. and tour marketing, but her client roster was all the rock stuff. It was all Ken and Crows, it was Sting, it was GNR, and it was Manson and I will still Yo, say your on high school record, friend was so jealous Sorry. he was so record but I will say on record that this Marilyn Manson show that I saw at my time there is probably the best live musical performance I've ever seen wow. it was at Roseland we were oh. on the second floor did you write the, something about this on, on Facebook very possibly yeah I, th- I think you did it was the craziest thing I've ever seen like I've never been in a hip hop show where the floor is literally like shaking and that's what was going on at this Manson show wow um, peak Manson peak Manson like yeah. crazy this like, was uh, like we were also Dope show. It was it was after that I think, but still Manson had a good run. He mm-hmm. had a good yeah. run, and he did it. So you know uh, he did that song, but I don't remember which album it was touring for. Um, but that's that's where I was, and I I knew I didn't see any inroads to hip hop there, but I saw John doing all these things, and I was like you know wanted to do that. And, and, and so how did you find? So the, over the summers you would go out to. Oh, sorry, that yeah. was the question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm giving you my fucking life story. <laughs> no, all you want to know is that time that I. Did Coke with Scott Disick? <laughs> Jesus. Um, so yeah, I, at some point, I, I um, you know, getting back to my cash school roots, one of the summer's jobs that I had growing up was I lifeguarded. It was like the easiest and quickest cheat code to getting paid. Like lifeguards got paid twelve or fourteen dollars an hour to spin a whistle. Minimum wage was seven fifty. No, to go down in the cabanas and smoke weed. Come on, I didn't do any work. So um, I had done that all my life, and when I got to college, I needed a physical education credit, and they offered a lifeguarding class, which I took. So I was certified to be a lifeguard, right? Congratulations. I, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. I never had to do a save, believe it or not. I did pull one Hasidic kid out of the pool one time. Really? But no CPR or anything. Yeah. 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 So John, John, you know, in, in my relationship, I was still at college. He was still in New York City, and he would summer out in the Hamptons. He was like, yo, you should come out there. And I was like, yo, I got this lifeguard certification. Why, if I find a lifeguarding job, I can do it. You know, and that, that in John's story, he fails to tell you that part of the dynamic of it. So I like, I again, pre-internet, like got newspapers and found this job, found this great job at this tennis club out there lifeguarding. So that was my main source of income out there private club private club was like that was one of the best summers of my life living out there yeah for sure so I would lifeguard during the day and then John who talked about promoting this club got me this gig as this I wasn't the doorman I was the cashier there right I was the cashier oh there's a cover oh yeah dogs Like, I think that the statute of limitations is probably up for my <laughs> summer out there. But I, it, it, it was the best summer because I walked out of that place with so much fucking money. Oh that was like, you know. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, that's what I would do. But I would be out. Gas being, money. Yeah, gas money. <laughs> 
uh, I would be the cashier at this club until four or five o'clock in the morning, right? And then I would have to get up at seven thirty in the morning to go lifeguard all day. Oh my! You God. know, so when John talks about the neurosis that I had back yeah, then. Yeah. It was because what he would do is he would just lay around the crib and smoke weed and chill all day. And right. I was like up working like 16, 18 hours every day in the sun, in the sun yeah. and come home and catch a quick power nap and, you know, maybe smoke some weed and then go out and do the cashier shit. And, and um, that club, though, I mean, I've never seen a club. I mean, we're talking like celebrity, A-list celebrities. We're talking about at the time, you know, your Paris and Nikki Hilton. You're talking about your Howard Stearns. You're talking about your Vince and Shane McMahons. You're talking about, you know, your hip-hop people like Hove and Dame. And, and, and the Dame story, like, this is peak Armadale, right? Yeah. Peak Armadale, yeah. right? So Dame comes to the club, right? And, and, and the doorman, based on how you paid you would get a ticket from the doorman and then you would come to me with the ticket and I'd look at it and be like alright free or 20 or 40 or whatever it was right and Dame comes in draws in Petrovic jersey I still remember it wow. dipped out with a case of Armadale on his shoulders <laughs> and legitimately takes the ticket that the doorman gave him and flicks it at me <laughs> And just kept it moving, just with like <laughs> flick, and just. But I didn't even have like a chance to be like, sir, you know, like can you come back here for a second. I knew it was Dame, so I wasn't going to say it, and just literally flicked the ticket oh at me and God. kept it moving. <laughs> but you know, that was their playground, you know, celebrities' playground, and it was a, it was a, it was a crazy, crazy, crazy summer. Wow. And the people, I mean, I listened to the podcast with John. Yeah, there was people of the time, the Jonathan Chadbins and the Scott Disicks, who we didn't know would become who they are today. Right. Well, is that weird watching them on? It's kind of funny watching. Yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, but I'm happy for them. You know, like they've made something of them. And I think we were experiencing kind of like the ground floor of their lives beginning to take the shape that it is today. But at the time, and, and I called John when I heard the podcast, and I was so appreciative to the fact that what we did there was so not calculated and organic, right? It just happened, you know, like today with social media, it's super calculated. You want people to see you Snapchat. I'm at the star room or you're Instagramming, you know, we're at the star room and like, so people could see you and, and associate some value to your relationships because there's some cool related to it. Right. Like, none of that happened then. We were just there doing us not caring who, who watched. And I think that that was a like really, uh, I, organic experience for us to do that you know you're telling the story now for the instagram likes right i am nobody yeah. has their camera yeah. right? <laughs> when johnny asks you to come be the cashier there do you have any idea the level of celebrity that will walk in not at all no not at all because i think what it started out was like john and, and and john's ability to promote was that john as you guys know is a real personal dude and, he, and a personable dude and he lived out there for summers and knew all the kids you know so if he and he talks about meeting the scots and do, wanting to do this party it was supposed to be like a not a teen night but it was not going to be their marquee night right? right but he packed the fucking place because he knew all these kids and all these kids who lived out there needed a place to go you know so they all showed up there so i think that in the beginning i was just responsible for being the cashier at these at these nights, right? A, because I didn't know nobody, right? I wasn't from the Hampton, so it wasn't like, oh, here comes Tommy and Billy and like they can get in for free because they're my boys, right? It's mm. like I was I was going to be strict and I was about my paper, you mm -hmm. know, because I knew I was going to get paid for it. And then it kind of blossomed from that where they were like, hey, man, we need a cashier for the other nights. And again, I like developed this system 
based on their ticketing that worked for them but really was working for me in the sense that I was able to skim off <laughs> the top. Was there any part of you that wanted to like get off the cashier and go party with everybody else? Um, I mean, if you guys knew how much money I was making a night, no. <laughs> no, it was better served me to be sitting on that stool. Kind You of made more than lifeguarding? A little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, a yeah. little bit. Lifeguarding for the last 20 years? A little bit, yeah. yeah. What was your relationship with Jessica Rosenblum like? Jessica, I, I didn't know Jessica at the time. You know, I think Jessica was always this bigger than life person to me you know and again not having like you know the cashier job sounds like fun it was lucrative but it wasn't a it was like a thankless job you know it was more production i wasn't like a promoter who had this group of people that i could bring to the club so i guess i kind of was like i don't know background you know so i didn't really have a relationship with her because i didn't really bring much to the table to that scene to Mm -hmm. her did you work uh the white parties i did um i attended the white parties you know the white parties were white and all white Mm -hmm. yeah 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 i attended a couple of them i remember um you know the osbournes were huge at the time so this is like oh two osbournes right what a footnote in in our culture yeah they were huge at the time And, and again thinking of what we know today about social media and real time and reality like they were the first to fucking do it yeah but yeah kelly and jack were out there and i remember that was like a big deal and jonathan chemin was the one who brought kelly out there and like yeah um where did you get your white pants i forget where i i don't know I don't know. I, I don't remember where I got them, but I definitely got jerked off by a girl in my white pants and came in white, <laughs> my white pants, and the white party was over after that. I could. I was like, I got. I got to roll home. That's a real story. I was like, I, I look at your fucking white pants and a huge cum stain on. Them. Shout a, out to a, her. And a, yes. a knot of money. From <laughs> and a, yeah. And a knot of money. So it was like not a good look. Did you? Uh, <laughs> it was a great look, but not a good look for. It was a good look for me, but sure, not yeah. a good look for me. Did you, you know I mean? did you play did you play basketball with any of those Never. guys? Never. No. You went did you, did you hang out? I am not athletic oh, at well, all. That's what foot that's what you should hey, know about me. Hey, hey look. That's well, I would say I would say that, that Johnny's not athletic. I, but. Look, John was a different dude back then. <laughs> I mean when we John was like, believe it or not. Johnny Shipes was like about his like I'm, I won't smoke weed yeah. like I'm about my business this yeah. is what I do I'm, I'm serious and he didn't really smoke weed the way he smokes weed today correct Not, matter is fact, that your I fault? Rem- <laughs> no I remember times where he would like shun me for smoking weed like in the crib like why are you smoking in the crib blah, 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 blah. believe it or not that's right? crazy and um, so so he was about his business back then oh uh, also uh, do you have any memory of uh, living in the uh, old dude's crib the old dude's crib oh yeah Michael Kanegan yeah yeah <laughs> Michael Conegan, he smoked Marlboro Reds, he had this mustache, and he had a voice like this. Boys. He used to call us boys. Boys. Nah, but when we went there, and again, this was all on John's, like, hookup. Like, I got the job. That's all that I needed to do. But John got this crib, and when we moved in there, did we learn that this man's father died, right? right? But when we pulled into the crib, we didn't realize, like, the dude died, like, two days ago died, right? And, like, literally, like, the guy, Michael Conegan, was like, can, can you boys help me, like, move the stuff out? And we were like, all right, yeah, sure. But, like, you when you go and look in the garbage, and the dead man's tissues are still in there. Like it was like super kind of creepy. Where you know he, this guy, I guess he didn't want to do have anything to do with it. Like the man's clothes were still in it, and 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 all we did was just shove those shits in a bag and just try to get moved into this place as soon as possible. Oh my god, Jesus! So the whole, the whole summer you spent out there and. Where do you go at when once the summer ends? Are you going home or back so, to school? Again, or? I guess, I guess um, the statute of limitations. I probably like walked out of that working at that club with like I don't know. Fifteen or twenty thousand dollars oh, in cash. Oh, oh, that's that's a lot of money. That's a lot. It was a <laughs> lot of money. But to really understand this is, I lived in this 
room because that's where we live. John, this other kid, Jr., and myself. And I don't know why we made the decision to let Jr. have his own room. And John and I decided to speak room. And he talks about the fact that I lived on a fucking air mattress on one side. He had this other mattress. It wasn't a bed, like a mattress. Like talk about trap house. Yeah. This shit was like a Hamptons trap house, right? And so I had all this loot, right? And like throughout the day I would go to work and who the fuck knows who John was bringing through this crib whether it was artists or people from New York City or whatever DJ was coming out from New York City to DJ so I had all this cash and did not know what the fuck to do with it right invest so it, no there was no <laughs> investing there was there was literally a, a coffee can in a fuck in the backyard buried like legitimately like that was the only what, place like, I, felt, I felt fucking safe was like Maybe there was a couple, like, $1,000 in, like, a shoe in the closet or, like, in the inside pocket. But there was this can of cash, some in, the, like, the, the glove box of my car. But I, that was the only way that I felt Do you think safe. Michael Kanegan, like, looked outside and saw you with the shovel, shovel and digging like, out what there? is he I doing? I have no idea. But that was the only place I felt safe. And then the heat started to come because they were like, hmm, Evan didn't work last night. And there was another $8,000 in the drawer. <laughs> and I was like... Uh, and then the whole thing with John popping my air mattress yeah. was towards the end of the summer and legitimately, like, packed my stuff up and drove back upstate. Like, it was like a Thursday. I was supposed to work Friday, and I just peaced out. You know, went back. I think I went back to college for a year, and then my New York City career started after that. And, okay, so <laughs> so you graduated from Oneonta. You have a degree in what? Music industry. Music industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you come down <laughs> to New York City with that degree. Right. And Wait, you is are. that a BS? It is. A, a, I'm <laughs> full of BS. It is all BS. So, <laughs> so you had that – that internship at Interscope, you have this experience at the Star Room, right. you've been around megastars, yeah. and you've seen what this life is like. Now you're moving to New York City? I moved into Staten Island with a girlfriend. Staten I've lived Island. in every single borough. Yo, fuck, fuck Staten Island. Fuck Staten Island. <laughs> And fuck that girlfriend. Fuck that girlfriend. Because she's not listening. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And if she was, fuck you. Well, I hope she's listening. Is she to the one that episode. jerked you off? No. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> but she was my girlfriend at the time. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oops. So, oops. Yeah. So you moved to Staten Island, and what are you? What's your job? I you? just so I'm I'm in Staten Island, and I'm interning. I'm coming to New York City on a daily basis. You know, on the X. 15, I think, was the boss. Oh, my God. Taken into Interscope, which was somewhere up on maybe 57th and Broadway. Yep. You know, and kind of like peripherally, like looking into the, to, to guys like Rob Kiafa's office. Rob was at Interscope. Do wow. you guys know Rob? No. no. Rob's at Def Jam. I think he's like one of the big market, head of marketing or somebody, something up there. Yeah. But was at Interscope and kind of like peering into those, you know, closet um, offices and a guy named Jesse Stone. And Jesse Stone ended up running um, uh, Baby Grand with Chuck Wilson. So mm -hmm. there was like peripherally, like I was like snooping in and all the hip hop that I could but my day job was doing things like merching shows out for Keen or merching shows out for these rock indie bands and like I, I just wanted so bad to be down in the studio where 50 Cent and, and, and you know Saigon were yeah. because that was my interest um, and then I got a job. I got a job because, again, I was dealing with these artists and management for these artists. And, and, and the, the manager for Sting from the police yeah. was somebody who I interfaced with, the business manager. And he was a, a white dude. And I think one time I called him. His name was Dave. And I was like, all right, Kumo cool D, whatever you say. You know what I mean? And he loved that I loved rap. He yeah. remembered Kumo cool D. And, sure. and we would do these kind of like funny name games. And eventually he was like, look, man, we're moving offices down on 12th and Broadway. He's like, we need somebody to like pack boxes. I mean, essentially he hired me as a schlep, right? Yeah. You know, to pack 
pack boxes, which I took the job. The, the internship was unpaid, and um, I helped them move this office. And the, the, the genius thing is that when they got down to this office, I was the only one who knew where all the stuff was, <laughs> you know, because I had packed all the boxes. And they were like, look, we need somebody to stay on as an office admin. And I worked there for about a year from office admin, and I ended up kind of managing from a paperwork side all of the publishing that Sting had. And well, if there was anything you were good at, it was uh, – Digging it was holes in the backyard and hiding holes and managing hiding other money. people's yeah, money yeah, and yeah, hiding yeah. money. I mean, that's my biggest regret sitting here today is that I didn't become a student of publishing, hmm. didn't understand the licensing game because I had a front row seat to an A-list celebrity, A-list musician like Sting, yeah. who was getting like 30 or 40 grand to license 20 seconds of Roxanne for some TV show. You know, But it was a paper-pushing job. It was me like basically organizing the spreadsheet, and, and I didn't want to be doing that. I what year, what be, year is this? This is... Oh four, oh five ish, oh three. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I graduated in oh one, so maybe it was oh two, oh three. Okay. You know. So this is this is after Cameron sample. This is day after yeah. SD. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is after he did like the. <laughs> I dream of <laughs> Let's keep going, keep going. I don't know. Keep going, keep going. Five hundred bars. Yeah. You're now working a, a, a nine to five. Yep. Or maybe longer hours. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, it's nine to five. Did you have to get dressed up for it? No, it's a pretty chill office. Sting's manager, and I think it's still his manager today, is this older woman somewhere from up on Central Park West. And this young guy, younger guy, Dave, was his business manager who yeah. handled all the. And there was it was only four people. It was uh, his manager, her, you know, her very cliche gay assistant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a business manager and a publicist. And then me. And did you meet Sting? I met him. And I think the thing that was most impressive to me, and I'm sure he was prompted, is that in the two occasions that I met him, he he knew my name. That's awesome. He knew my now whether somebody prompted him to do that or he asked, but I remember thinking like that. Wow, that really was pretty, it's meaningful. Pretty cool. yeah. It was really yeah, meaningful. Yeah. Where do you see your life going? Are are you like this is where I'm going to be? I'm going to grow with all these people and stay here, and me and Sting are going to for you know, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought that there were opportunities to travel. I mean, this was a guy who was doing like any a list shit, you know, whether it's the Grammys performing or whether it's music cares or whether it's you know Super Bowl halftime show which I don't think he did but I'm giving you the idea of of stuff that he did there was opportunity for me to grow you know regardless of what it was and what capacity I didn't know but I was hanging on to the coattails of the opportunity as much as I could um and then they came to me one day, and they, they I think that basically I was a glorified secretary, right? Mm-hmm. And then, again, not to be stereotypical, but that women are tend to be more organized, and I had shitty handwriting. And they were like, you know, look, we, we could tell. They knew me at that point. They knew my love was hip-hop and rap and sneakers and all things, you know, that were not of what Sting was. And mm-hmm. it was kind of a, a mutual separation, you know. Where it was like we love you here, but we don't think that this is for you. I remember they set me up with with a interview at Rolling Stone. I went and took the interview at Rolling Stone. I didn't get the job, and then and then and then my decision was like, yo, I know that John is still doing this thing. Let me hustle. Let me meet up with my boy and hustle up with him and see what he's got going on. And you know, and that's what I did. You know? And what what was that? I, I mean, John at that point had a studio on Fourteenth West Fourteenth uh, East Fourteenth Street. Um, it was a small studio. He was working with um, a, a group called Smoke and Numbers, which today we know as being Smoke Dizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a partner named Numbers. Um, John was managing, you know, John was managing DJs, and, and his ability to manage DJs was that he was able to get them gigs at places, whether it be the Hamptons or whether it was in New York City. So it worked really well for that to be inroads both for the DJs and for John is that he was really a glorified booking agent. That's what he was. Um, and I came into that place and, um, you know, I don't know what I wanted to do for John. I think that marketing and creative always had a play for me. And again, to really understand that what marketing was, this was not a place in where 
uh, you mark social media marketing existed. Yeah. You know, um, I, I actually remember giving setting up John's first email address for him. The kid, dude didn't have email. You know, so this is where the time was. And I was always a, a computer guy. I always stood, understood the internet. I had been in this like underground internet chat with music, so and catalog. So I knew the importance of that. And I remember. Um, you know, so when I came on board, there was a kid from that that scene who was moving to New York, um, and his name was Fat Matt. And I don't know if you guys probably ever met Fat Matt, but mm-hmm. Fat Matt moved. He was again in this music scene, and I knew he was moving to New York, and I and I knew he was. He also had relationships with DJs, and I inter- introduced him to John, and in started this like little group of of, of us um, that worked together, and, and and Matt had made his inroads with DJs by servicing them the music that he got from online hmm. to DJs to put onto their mixtapes. Hmm. So he had relationships with them. And um, the long and short of it is, is that Matt and I began to partner on this mixtape distribution company. This was a very time when mixtapes, and a lot of people don't know this about me, but you know, this was a time in which mixtapes were really becoming uh, you know, the place for new music to be, to be broken, right? Yeah. Um, and John had relationships with some of these DJs by booking them. They, some of them were mixtape DJs. And uh, Scram Jones was a DJ yeah. who put out mixtapes. Uh, DJ Spinbad was a guy who DJed in clubs who yeah. also put out mixtapes. And Spinbad put out this 80s mixtape, which has kind of become part of a legend. It's an amazing mixtape. And those things sold like hotcakes, right? So when John was working with these guys, we came in and said, well, fuck, why don't we just start like we can expand your ability as a manager by you can book them, but we can also distribute their mixtapes. And that's what this guy Matt and I started to do. And we built up a clientele between John being able to book DJs and us being able to distribute mixtapes like legitimately made uh, made it look attractive to a DJ as a client to come on board and so you built a website, or you... we didn't? We didn't. I, we had a store list, like yeah. legitimately, like this old Excel files of stores, like in you know all over the country, and then um, built relationships with the websites like Mix Unit or yeah. Mixtape Murder or Live Mixtape Kings, Live Mixtapes, no, well, Mixtape Kings, Mixtape Kings, like began to build relationships with them and were distributing both physical in the real world like going down on 14th street and going to canal street and yeah. running around now matt to know why we called him fat matt he was like six foot it was white kid six foot seven like three or four hundred pounds big dude my god so when you what saw was his him, bmi well oh, jesus i don't know fat <laughs> gravy i don't know uh <laughs> as his blood type gravy uh, so well, wait so how are you convincing these places to like stock your your mixtapes you know it was it was um I'm a, I'm a good salesman, you know. Again, I think that the price point that we can give to them was cheap. Sometimes it was consignment, which was an attractive thing for some of these people to take 20 mixtapes on the arm, you know. But then it was follow-up, you know. Then it was showing back up in a week, in a month. And then, you know. Sure, we, with we, a baseball bat. We, <laughs> no, well, you know what it was is we began to attract pretty good. I mean, John is a good salesman, too, you know. So what started out as Scram Jones and what started out and then Spin Bad and then a dude on the West Coast whose name was DJ Warrior. And then we had some drama titles. So we were we were we were – we were getting good mixtapes, you know, so the yeah. quality and, and, and these things, like, you couldn't put them on the shelves fast enough because that this is the era in which, you know, the mixtape game, like, was, like, out of here, yeah. you know. Um, so then, you know, we did that for a while, and, and, and then we kind of said to ourselves, like, why are we killing ourselves doing these? Other, like, why don't we do our own mixtape? I wasn't a DJ, and Matt wasn't a DJ, but we had this reservoir of all this music, and, and this is also um, post-crunk 
Southern music explosion, right? Mm-hmm. So we started this company that we called Evil Empire, and it was the Ev and Ev and M for Matt Empire, you know. So it was Evan and Matt, and and we started a series called Be South, and that was like our our thing, Evil Empire, and and you know we pride on ourselves of being New York City's down south supplier. Yes, yeah, that was that your job. Yeah, that was. That's so crazy that like that's I crazy. Didn't know that was you until yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So we, we have like some, some of your songs. Yeah, yeah. a yeah. lot of your songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what we did, and we did that. I mean, shit, that was that became my job. That became my life. Like I lived off of hustling mixtapes. Like we would do. You know, I mean, you found that. You know, I found that we can produce a mixtape, a CD insert case for like forty cents, right? Right? And then you can go out onto these websites and wholesale them for like two two fifty a CD. Yeah. You know, so they're like taking four or five eight hundred CDs. You know that was a nice check. You know, and then you were calling on stores and it, and we were just timed it right because Southern music like popped. Like I don't really talk about this, but I really think to this day that the first mixtape where you heard Rick Ross do drops on yeah. was an Evil Empire mixtape. I still have the drops where he was like I'm I'm smoking strawberry Phillies. Like it, it was like still ghetto. You know he was still like. Hood. That's awesome. Yeah, and it, they took off, you know, and then we did that for two or three years, you know. We did that, hustled those mixtapes hard, and that was a living that we made. And, you know, there were times when Cinematic moved into an office that some of the income that was paying the bills was from hustling mixtapes because we all worked out of the same office space. Yeah. You know, because it complemented, like I said, what John can attract a client to was just like, yo, I got these dudes who can take you. Now, Evil Empire is popping, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They could put you on a mixtape, you know what I mean? So, like, that became a good way to attract that from not from DJs into actual artists. Who was the 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 voice of Evil Empire? He was a dude who worked at Power One Hundred Five. Uh, it was these drops. It was again the, those radio drops that you heard. Yeah, and this was also right. That is. Uh, hand in hand with a mixtape now those deep voice radio drops yeah. Yeah. they weren't out there when we were doing that like, right. we were the first person to kind of take and it was my idea it was like yo we should get that radio dude who's doing like very formal announcements and have him say some like real dirty gangster <laughs> shit you know but then, then there became like the Trapaholics which I think is the yep. most famous one where it's yeah. like damn son where'd yeah. you find those yeah. Yeah. Like, that was an offshoot of what we were doing because we were having them say gully shit you yeah. know like street <laughs> underground shit and people fucking loved it because <laughs> it was our goal to change them every tape like the drops would match the tape it wasn't I didn't know that it was about consistency right, right? and that once you had like a, oh man you know like thinking about the who kid drops yeah, they're yeah. always the same but we try to change them for every tape That's- that we did that's this is unbelievable. Oh, I, you guys didn't know that? I had no, no idea. Yeah. yeah, this is so great. Yeah. Did you know in the moment what you guys were doing? Um, I just knew it was fucking making us money. Yeah. I knew it was making us money, and there was accolades. I, I think that there were accolades associated with it that I wanted at the time. Things like Mixtape Monday on MTV right. was yeah. like the big thing, and Ozone Magazine because we were Southern based used to do a back. The back page was all the hot mixtapes. Um, and, and, and obviously Mix Unit, which was like the top dog of the mixtape websites, would do like whatever top eight. I think that, you know, this is my space time. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, in addition to doing the mixtape hustle is, is, is that my space is an important thing for me to talk about because as John began to onboard clients, I knew the importance of taking these clients and developing digital profiles for them, right? You know, this is a time where, you know, when you hustle that music, you got a, a demo CD and an 8x10 shiny glossy and you went and you hit the streets with that, you know, mm-hmm. but my space really revolutionized that sense and that fact it had an audio player and the fact that you had pictures. So a lot of that was digitizing that and my inroads that I made from mixtape cover art 
became people who were digitizing and customizing MySpace pages, hmm. right? So when when bigger artists came on board, like you know, I know you guys talked about Sean Kingston, but John worked with J.R. Rodham. Like yeah. I use those relationships of, of graphic artists, and one of them is is Show Me. I don't know, you guys know Show Me, Elusive Media. That's what he did in the beginning. Was he customized MySpace pages? He was a graphic designer, <laughs> and we trip. Like Joe, Show Me shot Joey's devastated video, and I was at the Joey video Badass, shoot. Yeah, yeah, Joey Badass. Sorry, and we like kicked them. We've seen each other a couple times, but we're tripping over the fact that like we both started in this very different capacity and now have moved on together. And but you just knew each other from online. Like we ju- yeah, you didn't man. meet him in Virginia. This no, was, yeah. no, no. That was the hustle. And through the mixtape game, there was a lot of people that I didn't know that I either knew through the moniker Evil Empire, who didn't know Evan was the Evil Empire. Look at us. Yeah, right a like- lot of people don't know that, but. Very, I'll tell you this much. There's always been this consistent theme, and I think about it now, of how I've approached my online persona, right? Let's, if we call that. It's always been me. Was I let the product speak for itself, right? I didn't put my face out there. It wasn't about, oh, this is Evan and Matt. Because mm-hmm. I think that took a little bit away from what Evil Empire was. And, and, and you talked a little bit about the salesmanship of going door to door trying to sell these mixtapes. It was a struggle to go out to the Coliseum in Jamaica, Queens, two, two white kids trying to hustle the southern music and sure. make mm-hmm. people believers of it. Because we knew it was going to pop but people didn't know that it was going to pop you know but when it but when they saw the music on there it spoke for itself and they didn't even have to know that that was us right you're more frank lucas i'm more frank lucas (laughs) who are some of the ludicrous who are some of the artists now who have like who are like doing okay now who sent you stuff back then oh man well ross is definitely one of them um i'm trying to think like we definitely had slim thug stuff that like slim thug would do drops there's a ton of people who didn't make it that i think were pretty amazing there was a group called three three four mob from mississippi two brothers one of them killed himself they didn't make it there was another group called the backwoods from atlanta yeah yeah. first of all i love they were dope right yeah one of my favorite songs is the one where they flip the willy wonka oh yeah yeah yeah, the oompa loompa yeah i don't like the look of it yeah, 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 yeah. They did a couple of joints, but they were early on. And, and again, it wasn't about as much to me about the economy right at that point for Southern music is you never knew who was going to pop. Right. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, so even you, still, I think. Uh, yeah, that's true. So you try to put in, I, at least mine was like, let's get as many feelers into many up and comers as possible. You know, and I don't think we were really in a place where we can leverage ourselves to get the big A list, the Ludas and, mm-hmm. and the Little Johns, because we were in a, in, in a small group pool of of talent, but there were big dogs. I mean, drama, mm-hmm. right. DJ Smalls, yeah. that dude was killing it. Yeah. You know, but our advantage is that we were on the streets in New York City, right, yeah. where they weren't. So, I mean, we, it worked for a really long time. And then, you know, obviously, fast forward, there was like the incident with drama and the RIA, and that yeah. was kind of scary. And, and, and things began to pick up on the cinematic side, to be honest. You know, I started doing more things like more of the marketing coordination on albums. You know, John had a relationship with Baby Grand. So he, and through Zach Katz, managing high tech, I know he talked about that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did marketing on High Tech's album and then the Baby Grand album, and that began. I feel like that that was a little bit more legitimate than hustling mixtapes, you know. And um, and Matt and I had we kind of went our own ways, and Matt, famously enough, ended up doing the Empire. Right, that was the offshoot of Evil hmm. Empire, and all those drought is over mixtapes. Yeah, that yeah. Empire, that was all him, you know, at post uh, Evil Empire life. Wow. And, and I kind of went more into the marketing and, and made that my inroads because I felt that there was more legitimacy into doing that. And it was all the things that I mean, I did marketing for Evil Empire. I was the one responsible for cover art and logos and things like that. The music part, Matt handled. Matt yeah. was more of like, I get the music, I get it early, and I was more of like, all right, how do we package this up and make this sellable? Did you Did you ever get any threats? 
threats from other DJs? Nah, not really. I th- I don't. Did think... you ever threaten any other DJs? Um, nah, I don't think so. Do you want to threaten any other DJs? Sure. Yeah. That, that, now we could start airing people out. <laughs> Fuck you, Smalls. Yeah. No, I met Smalls. Smalls is, t- is 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 the DJ for Yo Gotti. Yes, yes, yeah. Down yeah. South by Southwest, we tripped, and I was like, Yo, man, I gotta I gotta introduce myself and tell you. And he was like, Oh, dog, that's you. You know, like it was like everybody embraced it because I felt like you were all in the kind of same boat together. Right. Like, yeah. I, I could tell you when Mix Unit was uh, in Connecticut. That's where their offices were, right? But they would come to the Bronx and they would meet all. That's where they would re up, hmm. right? They would come and 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 and, and what? I, it's such a cool story. Like up in the Bronx, up on Bruckner, in front of a CD shop is is where you knew on Wednesday at five thirty, Mix Unit was going to come and they were going to cop. So you had all of these people together. You had Fendi, you had Sycamore, this is like the you Warriors, had Splash, yeah. You had Envy, you had all these dudes just like lined up in their cars waiting to do business with Mix Unit. They would cut you a check right on the spot, which was dope. You know, you didn't have to do no consignment, right, yeah. but everybody kind of converged in this one area to do these pickups and drop offs, and this was like super cool so and you, you too and yeah us too so you kind of began to know one another and then you began to find out find out that there was these underground of people who were remember how we started as distributors right, right. then you had these other people who were mixtapes in themselves but they were still distributors and they would show up and build relationships and and again as the marketing took off for me and matt and i split i didn't have as much time one of the distributors came to me and was like yo dog like what are you doing with evil empire and i was like man i'm just so busy and he was like well i'll fuck with it and i was like all right and i was like i set a price hmm. you know i gave him all the masters all all the stores I had and just basically was able to take this thing that was like a hustle and then and, and sell it for five figures. Like crazy cash. You know what I mean? And, That's and so many coffee cans. It was so many <laughs> coffee cans. A lot of coffee cups to drink to get rid yeah. of all that coffee. So who had the nicest car pulling up to the Bronx? Fendi. All the time. Fendi. What was he driving? Uh, Escalades. Big trucks. Big yeah. with the TVs. In. Remember Big Truck Not, Series? That was yeah. like a flex mixtape. Yeah. Big yeah, Truck yeah. Series. That's what was popping back Wait, then. Wait, so Envy didn't have the nicest cars? I don't... Th- I, you know what? I feel like Envy might have gone once or twice, but Envy was so popping that he would like send his man to go. <laughs> right. And, and he showed up in like a Toyota camera. Splash. Like that was his man man who went yeah. and handled all that. Yeah. But, at what point do you then end up at 550 Madison? So, you know, the market, obviously, as Cinematic grew, um, you know, John's client kind of caliber grew, and Sean Kingston was, was the guy who really was like the meal ticket for all of us. You know, I, I remember flying out to LA uh, with John. I remember John's first meeting with Nipsey, too, which is another story. But, you know, Sean Kingston was the ticket to 550 Madison, which was, which was you know, Epic Records. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, again, I took on a capacity all, all very much in the same MySpace time of not only working with Sean, but taking some of their other urban artists and doing exactly like making MySpace pages for them. Yeah. You know, because I don't think PR or publicists were thinking that that was of importance and I saw that. So, yeah, that's... that's was, that, was that tough to sell to like people who were long industry veterans? Um, No, because, you know, even today, because I still work in marketing, you know, there's always some older exec who has a niece or a daughter or who has something mm. where it's like you know today it would be like snapchat this you know and they get they hear these things over the christmas table or the hanukkah meal and they know that they need to be on it right but they don't know how you right. know so um and you do i mean but myspace at the time was a little bit difficult because it was the first of of its kind right but i was smart enough on how to sell metrics like look how many views or how many song plays this has you want to be able to get those song plays right yeah you know you're leaving things on the table by not doing that so sure. people were, were 
receptive to it. And it wasn't big artists. I think it was like Youngberg. And, and then when Nipsey came on, Nipsey was one of the artists. And, and, Wait, and do you guys rock with Youngberg at the time? At Epic, yeah. Epic oh, was, yeah. Uh, he was at Epic, yeah. We, we went to a Youngberg video shoot with Jim Jones and... Rich Boy. Rich Boy. Oh, wow. It was the Those remix. Was no. The, yeah. no, it was the remix for Youngberg's um, Sexy Lady. Yeah, he's oh, Sexy right, Lady. Right. Yeah. Is this Decepticon chain Youngberg time? Uh, yes, it was, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely yeah, yeah. He was. He was an Epic artist. I don't think John brought him in. I don't remember. But I had some dealings with Youngberg. Um, so, yeah, Sean Kingston was the meal ticket, man. Sean Kingston was, 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 was at least to me, my... Um, my ticket. How know, was he to work with? Was he a nice guy? He was, was super he... young. Yeah. He was super young, and it didn't work out the way that I wanted. I mean, hip-hop, the industry, music industry, like, nepotism is a real fucking thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I, I grinded out. I, I, again, and John alluded to this, you know, I have my own kind of demons that, that like, prevented me from being where I could have been. And that was a time in which... Uh, that really began to emerge, right? So, but I grinded. It didn't take away from the work that I did with working with Sean. And Sean had a, uh, obviously, Sean's producer, JR, was the one who found JR. JR had a brother named Tommy. And then, you know, Tommy was the guy who came to me for the marketing advice and would solicit it back to Zach or JR on the West Coast. And then, you know, when the album came out, I, I didn't get credited as, as the marketing coordinator. And, J- and Tommy did. Hmm. And I remember, like, it really began this falling out for me with John specifically and also. So like, because again, that was like a multi-platinum selling album, and right. I felt like that that was like the thing that could be on my resume that can really like write me a check to anywhere I wanted to go by having three or four credits under my belt, marketing, and you know, I don't know if I always saw my vision of being at Cinematic. You know, I felt like um, I don't know. I felt like you know, I always wanted to be at a big major, you know, like a Def Jam or you know somewhere like that, and this was the ticket to get there. Did it make you did that experience make you turn the radio off like Oh yeah, I mean it was really super difficult dealing with an artist that was of such like uh, sugary pop and not really loving it until I actually got an opportunity to see where that sugary pop music can take you, mm-hmm. right? You know, like I I wasn't dealing with any artist that got us to perform, you know, at Nickelodeon. I didn't have any artist that brought me to the Grammys, you know. In 03 we were at the Grammys. Sean wasn't nominated, but we were all able to go out and be participate with what that Grammy scene was like and that shit, you know, like that was like maybe, Oh three, yeah, that was like amazing, you know, yeah. to be at like Ludacris's Grammy party, Mary J. Blige's Grammy party, and like be around Black Eyed Peas coming up, and you know, getting in. in they were big at the time, and and, and uh, I was like, I could probably could get used to this, you know. Yeah. Did you more... did you walk into every party with some Armadale on your shoulder? Yeah, just... flicking tickets at <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, I had my draws and jersey on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then it obviously doesn't work out there. Yeah. Um, did you know what your next step would be? Uh no. No, no, I had like a bit of a downward spiral at that point, you know, kind of like shunned John, shunned the industry, went out on my own, not not even very much interested in being a part of it anymore. I got like a, a job at a hotel. Um, I, li- I moved to a st- or I had moved to Astoria or I did move to Astoria because I had been living in New York City all this time um, and kind of just like. Like a recluse almost, like kept to myself, didn't really associate with people, did a lot of drugs, it was not pretty, um, until, you know, my decision was, and it wasn't a, a, a noble decision on my own, I really feel like the decision was made for me to get the fuck out of New York City, you know, mm-hmm. like, and that's what I did, and I think it was 09, and, and by now, and moved out, went back upstate, you know, I was like, fuck this, man, fuck New York City, fuck John, fuck the hip-hop, fuck music industry. Did you move back home? 
moved back home, lived with my folks, got a job where at a university where I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a college t- teacher. I can talk to young kids in a way that most old professors can. I have life experience, you know, and uh, that's what I tried to do for, for about a year and a half. And, uh, and, and then through that process is where I got introduced to Tumblr, you know, and this whole uh, second iteration of my life came. And, and, you know, I was fucking around with Tumblr, I think, to do – I must have been turning 31, and I remember this because I was calling it Ev Boogie's Backwards Bar Mitzvah Birthday Party. Okay. Right? I was turning 31, and I used the Tumblr as a way to, like, share invitations with people and post pictures and keep people engaged with it all. And um, and that's where I got introduced to it. And I think that at one point I was like, right, this could be cool. What's a cool name for it? And I switched it from that, like Boogie's Backyard Barbecue, to Up North Trips because I had taken this Up North trip. Mm-hmm. Right? This was like this this my own version of what the Mob Deep song was. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Was like, oh, now you got locked up, you gotta go back up north. You yeah. know, and then yeah. that was for me was my own up north trip. And I don't think at the time I even knew what the fuck was gonna happen from it. It was just fun, you know. It was like something that while I sat at this college working that I would on their while they're paying me update, you know, or find pictures for. Now it's become like such a thing. <laughs> when you when you left New York and you moved back upstate and you you know, you said fuck the hip hop industry and fuck music. And did you, did you, did, does that mean fuck the internet too? Like, were you like, I'm not going to involve myself in social media or, or MySpace or yeah, whatever? Did you unfollow us? I did. <laughs> At that po- moment in time, that's when it happened. Remember those guys from that meeting that turned us down? Fuck them. Try to put a helping hand out to a couple of tribesmen, and this is how they repay me. When did when did Twitter come to be a? Oh yeah, thing? you know we didn't really even talk about our interaction back then. You well, know? our interaction, as as far as I know, the, the way we remember it is right. that like you guys liked our our videos right. and wanted to have some sort of involvement, whether that was like joining. Um, uh, Idiot Box TV, Idiot Box TV, right. or right. or doing something like collaboratively. Um, and and we we did go up to five fifty Madison yeah, yeah. and hear you guys out and we didn't know. And what I don't think was I spoke on. much. I don't think you spoke much I spoke either. Much either. You know. Well, I, you know. What? I I do think. I do I, remember it was the longest meeting I've ever had. I, was it really long? It was really long. I, I do think that you. At what point were you guys like fuck this though? Like for real? Was it like right when you walked in? No, it was probably like halfway through. I, right. I well. It was probably when you showed us like um, cousin Todd, cousin Todd, right. and um, shout to cousin Todd though. Yes. But but it was yeah, we were we were just like watching your videos and we were like, but what are we here for? Like I don't understand what this is. Yeah, right. and but <laughs> but I now come to think of it, I believe you took us like when you when you walked us to the elevator. I think you took us aside and you were like, you know what? Like he may be a lot, right? But whatever happens, I right. fuck with you guys, yeah. and I think you're doing something really great. Yeah, no, yeah I and, remember that. And that meant something to us, right. like more than Idiot Box TV or or Bong Hits in the Hood right. or or whatever. I think it was it was something for us to be like, hey, this is somebody in this, you know, what are, the thirtieth floor, whatever right. it was, like. Someone within the industry in this big building likes what these two idiots. Yeah, it's that's crazy. Like, I don't remember that. I don't remember pulling this side, but I, 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 I remember. remember that. I, no, yeah. no, I yeah. mean now that you say that, I, that's certainly something that that I did because John is a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah. he he uh, that there was a beautiful compliment between him and I in terms of a working relationship where he was. I was a little bit more analytical, right? And then and he was a little bit like, blah, you know, like. Um, but I did fuck with you guys, and I think my vision at the time is, yeah, we were working on this Idiot Box TV thing where I knew that video was trending in this place that was being replaced by, like, audio, you know, and, and comedy was the thing because, for real, like, our real life with John and me, we were, like, literally, like, 
uh, I don't know, Goonies meets Animal House meets, you know, an, you know, all those things. So I didn't. I didn't always want to be in front of the camera the way John did, but I knew that what we should be doing is curating this crew of really funny hip-hop people, and that's what Idiot Box should be. I don't always want to be the guy pulling my pants down and taking a shit on the side of the road, which <laughs> Wait, I never not, did. Not, not always? Nah, I, I never did that. <laughs> but Mike Lawrence did. We talked about Mike Lawrence, who did the bong hits in the hood thing, which was all improv, by the way. Though. That whole song where he was like, bong hits in, in the, the hood. hood. Yeah. You. Yeah. That was like his thing. And, 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 he, and then he took the bong hit at the end, and he said, for me, <laughs> it was like he, he, you know. But so I knew that 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 there, that's what I wanted to do. You know, I, I think I think that. for us too at the time we were like, um, and and still to this day, it's it's we have such a singular point of view, and it is this sort of like uh, we know our voice better than anybody else. We thought like if we were going to do anything with anyone else, it would be like okay, we can take this and put it through your channel you know right. we, we didn't know like what else to do with it and that's what i want i mean again i think probably would have cheapened what you guys had to be part of and not spotlighted right but that's what i wanted to do was have these different idiot box tv had these different channels it's the real channel yeah. um who were hodges remember the other guys we probably showed you the video with the dr pepper you remember which guy i'm talking about he was no. like in the woods and he was a black kid and he was like all serious about We'd have to look up the video. This is a, like a, this, a live action thing. It was a viral, a thing that went viral probably remember. around the time when we met with this kid being filmed in the, in the woods. Uh, and anyway, but yeah. he was like another idea. And then there was a broken equipment who were yeah. these yep. animators. Yeah, sure. yeah. You know, my idea Yo, was broken to, equipment doesn't get enough credit, by the way, dude. They were no, dope, they were man. Great. But again, to give a platform in a video thing to all of this video underneath Idiot Box, it wouldn't have been us like telling you what to do. But we would have like had these different channels that would have been yeah. all encompassing. I think too, like uh, like you guys, like when you were doing the Star Room, like for us, it was like let's just put stuff out there and see organically where where it will go. And I think. Um, you know, we've and we we had offers early from places like that. Other people said like, "Oh yeah, you should take it," and it was, and we turned it down. And it would have made us money, right? But at the same time, like we were patient and just decided to let it play out. However, it. it I went, mean, I share know? that 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 feeling again with up north trips, and I don't want to make it about the book, but I always have struggled with how do I legitimize this thing, and I've had had opportunities like, "Oh, you should do a streetwear line," you know, and it's like. Everybody's doing fucking t-shirts and hoodies and, right. and lapel pins. Like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I was, I've was, i been extremely patient with waiting for what the right opportunity was in spite of watching something that I've created become Xeroxed and copied. And, you know, because really, man, you know, there's a lot of people out there that do what I did. And I, and I, and I take appreciation to that, but I, there's also a sense of frustration in the sure. fact that, like, so many fucking people rip big brands ripping off an idea where I know people who are at these brands where it's like yo why couldn't you throw me a bone and right. make this part of mine like it's not taking anything away from your brand to give me the platform to let me shine in what I do I'm the best to do it right you know so let's make it happen so how how did that start how did you decide to to take all this stuff and become the encyclopedia for all of this you know uh, i think that and there's a really true story that seems pretty pivotal and looking back at it and i would share these pictures on up north trips and they would be rare photos and rare magazine covers and one in particular and i talked about this was was something that happened with elliot wilson right which elliot was you know i grew up reading the magazines that elliot created and i posted this source magazine cover which was a wu-tang cover and it's a the cover is a black cover with a 
red Wu-Tang logo on it. It's a pretty iconic Source magazine cover, if you remember. And I posted it up there like, I don't know, hashtag Wu Wednesday. I don't even remember what I wrote there. And I got an email from him. And this was like a big deal because I didn't really know Elliot at all, you know. And he was like, yo, man, let me tell you the story behind this cover. And he goes on to tell me the story about it was is that he was the you know editor in chief at the time, and they had paid thirty or forty thousand dollars, which is a huge amount of money, to have this huge photo shoot with all the Wu Tang, and they all showed up and they did this whole photo shoot, and they like couldn't get one photo of these hundreds of photos that every single Wu-Tang member agreed on. Either like Ray was like, nah, man, fuck it. I look way too stoned. Or Old Dirty was like, nah, fuck that. And they like were under, they were jammed up because they couldn't find one. So that Elliot was like, fuck it. I'm just running it with none of the photos. But he shared this story with me, right? Yeah. And he shared with me and I was like, wow, man, there's these really important stories behind all of these things. you know. And that was, that was a really thing where I think it was being taken seriously enough that there was a legitimate sense of authority into what I was doing, right? You know, but again, that idea of sharing these rare photos got ripped off very quickly that I needed to be agile and find something new. Yeah. And I think that this that this day in hip-hop thing um, happened super organically. Maybe it was like a Nas album. And I would do them periodically and then like you guys paying attention to what resonates, you know, yeah. and those types of posts would have higher engagement of shares and I was like, you know what, fuck this, I'm going to spend the next three months building a calendar out doing as much research as I possibly can Man. to see if I can build 365 days of hip-hop events, you know, and uh, yeah, that's where it started and, and, and everybody today, I mean, there's all of these websites and Instagram accounts and Twitter that wasn't happening, like, you know, I like to say that everybody was really worried about what Lil Wayne was wearing at the Lakers game last night. That's right. the kind of content. Nobody was really talking about nostalgia anniversarial right. content because I don't know why. I guess that – I don't know why. You know, there wasn't a place – there was a few of them. I think like blogs like um, – oh, what the hell is it? Um, some of the indie underground hip-hop things really took a retrospective view of things, but they weren't – mainstream in the way that I and I don't know why Up North Trips took off I think it was just about having the right people appreciate it and it, and it appealed to an older sensibility of people who are authoritative in the industry it wasn't about the young kid at first who was 15 who never heard that album but they began to appreciate because Elliot Wilson was sharing it or Joey IE was sharing it or It's The Real was retweeting it people who represented these huge audiences that gave that brand some authority to it yeah. Yeah. Um do you and and just playing devil's advocate, do you find um anything damaging about celebrating every single thing that ever happened? I think that I, I don't, though. I think that, I mean, I do find things, but I still think that, that that I make sure to use the cooler events. Like, I don't give a shit that yesterday was, whose fucking birthday was it yesterday? No offense, Slim Jimmy from Ray Shremmerd. Like, yeah, I don't right, right. think that that was like, Happy birthday, sorry. Slim Jimmy from <laughs> Ray Shremmerd. Sorry. Some of us care. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Listen, there's a great Twitter account called Only Hip Hop Facts. You can follow them. They Only got a Hip -Hop ton Facts. of bullshit like that. <laughs> Only Hip Hop Facts loves us. Fuck them. On the record. Yeah. Actually, can we edit this part to the beginning of the podcast <laughs> yeah. so when people are listening, they hear that? That'll be the drop that we PSA. put from. Yes, I love it. Um, no, I, I still think I try to do things. Well, first of all, if it's good to me, that's it really comes from an authentic place of what I like. You know, mm -hmm. Very rarely do I do it. And if I do do it, it's probably so, sort of tongue-in-cheek. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I'm not shitting on Gucci, but Gucci man's, Gucci's birthday. or You know, those are things that I did were related to my authenticity, but I also know that I had to feed an audience. I know what will appeal to the sensibilities of what's current and what's, and sometimes I, I have, like, this thing where it takes off on its own, like yesterday. Like, how coincidental was it that the 
Daily Newspaper with the J Lo thing oh, ran yeah. on the same day that Drake. Yeah. And I don't think he's that smooth. I don't think so. Right. Just, what do you guys do you think? think? That he, do you think that he is a calendar? No, I don't think. So. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think. I think it was just so super random, and it just happened to work out that I way. I agree. I agree. And yeah. I don't think people would have known it was the anniversary unless it was for. I think he's smart in terms of the internet and in terms of like memes. Right. Like when he's doing all the, yeah, he's yeah. got a sense of trollability. <laughs> but I, I, this is I don't like, think he's that calendar. Another level. No, 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 no. Also, I would just like to say I do not think that they're dating. You don't think they're dating? No, I do not. Are think you just dating. saying that because everybody else does believe it, and you just want to be like the one guy who's right in case? <laughs> yeah, just shouting from the mountaintop. <laughs> no, I, I do not think that they're dating. I think that um, that it's they're they're working on a new album. Like everybody thought that he and Taylor Swift were dating. Hmm. Right. I, I do not think, and I think somebody said they like shared a kiss on camera or something. Yeah, there was and, something that came out today, and I'm just like, it's all bullshit. Like, I don't she, know. I, I I read a thing, not to get like super into like this yeah. whole Drake and J Lo thing, but I did read a thing where it's like J Lo has never been uh, vocal about any of her relationships. And now she's going to start being like, uh, like really out there with Drake, and it's like I don't think so. Yeah, I think she's trying to sell records. I think they both know the value of the press that it's 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 garnering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she needs it. Drake knows how to use it to his advantage, and that's really what it's going to be. Yeah. I wish they had a MySpace page. Oh you know? my goodness, <laughs> yeah. one of those with the glitter that comes yeah, down the pages. Yeah, Remember those? Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, have you been approached by different artists who uh, respect what you do and want to yeah, do use your platform? Content? Yeah. Um. No. I don't, but I don't actively push it either. You know, like I think that what I I think that there's an integrity in keeping it very um, uneditorialized, mm-hmm. and that's again talking about what what Evil Empire did was that it's not about Evan and Matt; it's about the music. Up North Trips has always been about the content and not about the person behind the content, and that has worked against me. It has worked for me, but it's worked against me because I know that I remember really thinking to myself like. Early not right, right? When I would read a certain article, whether it was Nation who wrote about it or SK wrote about it, was that's how I processed the content was depending on the narrative of who was writing it. Sure. And I didn't want that for Up North Trips. You know, and one of the early things I remember is po- posting this cover of The Far Side. Maybe mm-hmm. it was like, I forget what album was. And somebody in the comments wrote something to the extent of like, oh, hello album that sat on the backseat of my 1989 Subaru Impreza that I listened to on my way to high school in ninth grade. And like, that was like super specific memory to them, right? Yeah. You know, now if I wrote three fucking paragraphs about what that Far Side album meant to me, mm-hmm. they might not take that memory away because it would be polluted by this long editorial like so i think that that's worked for me and worked against me and it's worked against me in the sense that people don't come to me for that platform and 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 and, and some do some clothing brands will say hey look can you put up some stuff on ig and you know throw you a, a couple of sweatshirts mm-hmm. and, you know and, and i'll do that if it's homies but i ha- i don't like really want to make it about that um i we did hear that you were reached out to by record labels yeah, no, I mean, there was one point in time where I did some work with a record label. They were working on a pretty big, uh, you know, label anniversary, liked what I did, asked me if I can research and calculate a calendar for them, which mm-hmm. I did, and, and it was kind of like a one-off thing. I wanted it to increase into more opportunities for them, and, and I think that there's such a huge record label that they, that they didn't really take advantage as best as they could of this huge anniversary, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, it didn't work that way, so it was a check. They made jackets. Yeah, they made jackets. That was cool they did a cool box set but there really wasn't anything you know very exciting about the box set either right you know um and it was such a storied historic record label def jam yeah um, that uh, <laughs> yeah that that they could have really taken it and, and and done some really awesome shit with it yeah yeah i thought that uh also sony was supposed to reach out to you you know I, sony was was I, you know there's 
I think the difficulty with I had with that relationship was is that there's so many um, sub labels at Sony, and right. it was like, okay, well, what are you guys looking to do? Who's your audience? They're like Sony, right. you know. And it's like, well, there's a lot. You wanted to be fucking. I don't even know if Celine Dion is on Sony, <laughs> but you know, is that what you want to be? Or like, you know, I, I'm matching your content to your audience. I think it's some things that big brands don't really get. They know that they want content, but they don't really know how to articulate it to who their audience is. And it's another another thing that I've learned at my job that I do today currently is the importance of doing that. And, then, and it's funny because like I, I, the job that I have today, I work for a marketing agency. I work right. up in the Hudson Valley. I got that fucking job because of up north trips. Like not directly, but when I went in to apply for the job, the digital, you know, I was hired as a community manager, which is kind of like a cliche term of somebody who's a, a Redditor, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> or, or a Twitter user. Yeah, um, not but, the Hudson Valley community. This no, is, no, yeah. no, 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 no. But the, the metrics that I put on my resume literally had how many Twitter followers I had, how many Tumblr followers I had, how many Instagram followers I had, and yeah. those were all as a result because that's what I did with Up North Trips. I was like, kind of built this community around some you know interest and 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 that, and there's so much that I'm able to bring to my agency as a result of the things that happen through Up North Trips that they think is fucking phenomenal. Yeah, no one cares about what your degree was in college no, anymore. No. Like honestly, <laughs> you know, and I and I am in a hiring capacity. I don't look at that shit. I'm no. not looking at your GPA. I'm not looking at what, what school. You you went to right. everything that what you can do and what you've done exactly you know? so now you so you spent the last five years i'm sure like not every day but right. here and there collecting scanning uh just you know uh writing about all these posters where is the most random or uh hard place that you had to go to find one of these posters um uh, there was a dude in the BX who like lived in this like shut in apartment, but as soon as you got in was like the sneaker and hip hop fucking museum, like walls to ceiling was records and sneaker boxes and stickers and, you know, all the shit. And it was like, it wasn't the strangest place, but it was the most impressive collection of things that I had seen, you yeah. know, floor to ceiling, you know, Nintendo cartridges, things of our youth, you know, that this guy like just like collected and he had this small little metal Nestle's crunch uh, tin and in it were all of these flyers all kind of like kept very pristine and, and uh, I think that that was the coolest thing because, probably because I was in awe of all the things that he had there it really touched to a lot of my interest points you know sneakers Although he he was a baseball fan, although he was a Yankees fan, <laughs> I could appreciate the levels of of collector ism. Right. That's mm. a real word that he he went to. It's not, to, but to yeah. uh, it is now. Yeah. Uh, Did you work with any street team like uh, people? Nah, there was. You know, this represents an era where there. Well, I shouldn't say that because the mid nineties there were street team, but these are more of the hand to hand flyers rather than the kind of wheat pasted. Uh, you know, the, they would be called flyers too, right? Flyers, posters. Uh, posters yeah. yeah, these are more flyers than posters. Mm-hmm. These are things that were were given hand to hand. These were invites, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense. So um, no, you know, uh, I think some of the strangest place. I know Stretch did a lot of the legwork. You know, his relationships. Um, uh, he was of the scene. I was not. You know, there's this. Um, um, how, how do I say it? You know, there's this. Um, uh, he was involved in I kind of you know observant versus participant kind of relationship that mm-hmm. that works very well in the dynamic. And these flyers were important to me in a very different way than they were important to Stretch. Right? These were ways for Stretch to get out his performance. Uh, for the flyers, to me, like I would come to New York City. You know, I would come and do school shopping as a kid, or come on family, and I would try to find myself in places where I can collect these flyers. Because hmm. again, 
pre-internet, this is where you learned about who the hot DJ was or who the hot performance was. And really how I found out about New York City. You asked me about New York City. Like, I knew New York, but I knew tourist New York. I knew Broadway. I knew, you know, go Carnegie Deli. I knew right. Cat's you, Deli. I 42nd knew, Street, 6th Avenue. I, you that's knew what 42nd I knew. Street, 7th Avenue. You knew. That's what I knew. <laughs> yeah. But with these flyers, when I would come in and I would collect them, and I got pictures because I would put them on my wall. I would have, like, you know, these collages of rap magazines and flyers. That's how I learned about New York City. That's how hmm. I learned about Avenue A. Oh, shit, Avenue A, Avenue B. Oh, Alphabet City. That's yeah. why they call it, you know. So these were informative in a very different way for me than they were for Stretch. Right. Um, but the He dynamic, already knew about Alphabet City. He kind of did. <laughs> yeah, he might have been there once or twice. Yeah. Um, but I have the best seat in the house to these stories. You know, like I'm literally going and talking about these things with Stretch and doing interviews, and I wish he could be here today. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have the best seat in the house to hear these stories that the only way they could be told is first-hand account. You know, the time that fucking Russell, and it's in the book, and the time that Russell Simmons came into Nell's and lost his cell phone and made the DJ, like, <laughs> stop the music and turn the lights on so Russell Simmons can find his fucking cell phone. Like, those types of stories can only be told from first-person account. I can't Google that. Yeah, you know, right. So this is this interesting time frame, and I think that, although this is New York City nightlife culture, that period between 88 and 99 is... Old enough now, which is fucking crazy because, you know, is old enough that people are looking at it as history and, you know, don't have a place necessarily to come in to research or to read about it. Um, And this book just scratches the surface of it all. Documentaries coming. Yeah? Yeah. I I was going to ask about that. That's that's awesome. Documentaries coming. I know that that we're really looking to tell more of the stories. And, you know, look, we got to have this great New York Times piece, but it was was critical in a great way in the Mm -hmm. sense that it talked – it left some stuff off the table. Right. You know, but to to, in our defense, and and, and this is my credo of all things, is that – editorializing the shit out of these flyers would have taken away the experience of people seeing them and recalling their own memories, which is what we want to do. And the prime example of that, I was in, in um, our Basel a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're starting this Kickstarter, so one of my jobs is to get this one, one copy of the book signed by as many people in the book as possible, wow. right? And we want to give that away. And I saw this opportunity where Ali Shaheed Muhammad of, of, of Tribe was sitting at the, this this place that I was at and I'm not one to really go and fan out and talk to people and I was like I gotta do this I had the book in my hand and I and I open up to the page and there's these great tribe flyers in there and I show Ali and his hands go up to his head and he's like is like so amazed he hasn't seen these things for 20 years yeah. right and he immediately jumped into telling stories he's like yo this spot right here he said we used to have an apartment above here there was no air conditioning and I remember one time Tip brought his air conditioning from Queens like I feel like if the book was over editorialized with stories, people wouldn't have those memories of their own, you know. And it's the same thing that I talked about with Up North Trips, and it's the same thing that I go back to the, the Evil Empire was is like this is about eliciting responses on your own. Yeah, you know, this is not to be my editorialization of 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 content, if you will. Take away from what you can, and you'll appreciate it much more. So, you're sold out through Amazon twice over. Twice. Yeah. So it's a success story. Is there another book on the way afterward? After I think that there is an era with specific to the nightclub flyers in the hip house, hip hop, you know, whatever New York City genre. There's a period between '84 and '88 that really hasn't been touched. They be, they're a lot harder to find. Mm-hmm. They're a lot more expensive to source. Um, but that seems to be the story. 
um, that that we we're looking to tell. But I think even before we move out of this, this eighty eight to ninety nine, uh, we've only scratched the surface. We really haven't pulled together. Although we pulled banded together a great people to talk about it, Moby, Mark Ronson, you know, Fab Five, Freddie, Kid Capri. It's very short and very antidotal. It's not in depth. It's not examining the. Uh, transition in New York City and that's been exciting for me to hear and something I didn't think about when, when I was writing this is, is that this period fuck the music fuck the culture fuck the clubs changed New York City this time 88 to 99 the Juliana era the, the AIDS era changed a lot and these are these like ways to document a, a, cult, a New York City that's gone, like for real. Like when I think about you know the way that things were from eighty eight eight through now, it's a completely different city. Yeah, you know, walk down Times Square and look what it looks like. It's fucking Disneyfied. You know, everything is Disney, and you know, um, well, no, it's off brand Disney now. Oh, it's off brand. Disney. <laughs> like right. you see Minnie Mouse, and she like has like you know uh, like a Coke you know bag problem. Yeah, she has uh, no problem. Coke problem. <laughs> no, that's just her nose. Yeah. Um, What's uh, some of the best parties that you've been to? Oh, man. I, like I said, I think that, that the parties that I relate to in that book um, are more of the shows. However, for party experiences, I have gone to a handful of nights at the tunnel, which was out of here. <laughs> uh, the hip-hop nights, I was really a shook one. I was super <laughs> not supposed to be there. But I also like did the flip side of the coin of like more of the house, let's do ecstasy, go party in the tunnel type of parties. And those like were crazy. I, I think one time like I thought it would be smart. Tunnel used to have this really long line, right? And I was like do, into doing ecstasy at the time and mm-hmm. I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to be online for 20 minutes and it takes 20 minutes for the ecstasy to kick in, yeah, why don't I right. eat it yeah. online yeah. and then by the time I... So I did that, right? And I'm there with this kid from college who I went with and we get up to the front of the line and they look it down at his shoes and he had sneakers on and they're like, nope, he can't get in. He's got to have shoes. So being the nice friend that I was, I was like... I didn't peace out on him. Be like, all right, Henry, peace. Good yeah, luck, dude. Yeah, like, yeah. I was like, all right, well, like, let's, like, he was like, I can get my boy to bring me some shoes. He lives over here. So, like, we, like, ended up sitting outside waiting. <laughs> and as soon as, like, we get off the line, like, boom, the ecstasy kicks in. And now I'm sitting out in front of the club, like, in the parking garage, fucked up. The dude didn't show up for, like, a good hour afterwards. I was fucked up. Like, there was a parking garage right across the street. And I just remember sitting there, like, feeling like my face was melting. But, uh, <laughs> No, I mean, I've been to a bunch of the, the hip-hop shows, and shout-out to Zvi Edelman and Peter Oasis. Like, Live and Direct was, was, was probably the era of this book. Live and Direct was their, was their um, show company. I don't even know how to, how to describe what they did. But a, a lot of that were events that I went to. You know, I was in college. I was a little bit older, you know, 88 to 99. I mean, in 88, I was 10 years old, um, so I was not out at nightclubs. But certainly... Pussy. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Biggest regret in my life. Uh, but, yeah, no, the late 90s one. Which is the no, the um, live and direct ones? Some great shows, you know. Seeing um, Most Def and, and Quali pre Black Star. Seeing a lot of the up and coming hip hop dudes um, was pretty dope. How would you know when it was was time to to turn it in? The book, yeah. <clears throat> um, I'll tell you, my experience with book publishing is very much similar to like signing with a major record label deal, major record deal. You know, this is like once you engage in dealing with a company like that, you kind of lose the autonomy of doing it your way, right? So you have to meet deadlines and you have to make it look the way that they think that it will be successful. So you know, uh, indie publishing is something that if we went for a round two, that I would really push for. Um, 
because uh, it's just easier. You know, you lose a little bit of the creative control when you when you engage in in, in, in dealing with a, with a book company, and then nobody needs to do that anymore. Self publishing, you can do that on your own. It's like nobody needs to sign to a major anymore, right? You know, mm-hmm. you're probably more successful to do the things the way and when you want to do them when you're on your own. Mm-hmm. Well. Ev, I mean, congratulations on on your whole career, but but really turning um, something from a digital uh, only aspect to a real physical copy. It's pretty amazing, and thank you for bringing it over. This is not my book; it's not your book. This is this our is our book. book. Yeah, <laughs> and also, um, you know, I hope that the ecstasy is finally hitting. It is. Uh, thanks so much, Ev. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of Waste Time with It's The Real Jeff. If people want to find out more about this podcast and find out more about us and find out about what's going on in 2017, where can people go? You can always go to soundcloud.com slash a waste of time. Also, you can go to iTunes to search for A Waste of Time with It's The Real. Um, leave a comment. Get our rating up. We are also on Instagram at It's The Real, Facebook at It's The Real, Twitter at It's The Real, Snapchat, it gets a little dicey. I am It's It's The Real, Eric is It's The Real, Eric. Are we on uh, MySpace? Do you have a MySpace account? Do you want to know what? After people hacked Tyler, the creator's MySpace this week, I'm hoping that I'm not. Do we have a Peach account? Uh, Peach still popping? Is Peach still a thing? We squatted on Peach. Peach.com slash It's The Real. Can people peach? If you're going to peach us, do it now. At It's The Real. Jeff? You know this podcast doesn't go anywhere. We don't tell people to spread the word. Get those flyers out there. Start spreading those flyers out to everybody else about It's The Real and a waste of time with It's The Real. What friend would you like to tell? I would like to tell Mario830 from San Antonio, Texas. Shout out to by, Mario. He goes by Luigi, but his name is Mario with two eyes, 830. I'd like to shout out a few people. I want to shout out Matt Fastow and Leah Palmieri. Uh, yesterday for breakfast and our real life friends of Ev Boogie and ourselves shout out to them happy new year to them and I would like to shout out a bunch of people who commented shout out to Marcus Strankowski shout out to KJuice42 shout out to uh, is this the same Luigi Jeff you think that commented on on iTunes I don't know we might have two Luigis who listen to our podcast we might have one Mario we might have a King Koopa some Hammer Brothers how about, I don't how about know. Princess or, or Toadstool shout out to Toadstool out there yo if we got Princess listening to us I hope that it's the Princess from Crime Bob. that's right shout out to the Not For Real For Real army out there we appreciate everybody who's who's leaving comments saying Not For Real For Real it really is funny that that thing is taking off Jeff we back at this next week yeah, let's do it. See you then.